Welcome to From Rewatch with Love, a James Bond cinematic rewatch podcast. My name is Graham Stark, and joining me as always is Matt Wiggins. Hello! Hello! And today, we are looking at 1987's The Living Daylights. Boy, it is, you know, new year, new Bond. This is a... There is so much to talk about, and this is a oh, yeah. very different... There are many aspects of this movie that are very different, and a few things that are still... Kind of the same in an interesting way. Yeah. A View to a Kill saw the end of the Roger Moore era, and we are now under the brief reign of Timothy Dalton. So I guess we should start briefly by talking about how that almost was not the case. Yeah, that sounds like a good place to start. Cubby Broccoli really wanted Timothy Dalton to play Bond, thought he'd be great for it. And he had done he had done The Lion in Winter and was offered the role and thought that he was like he Timothy Dalton thought he was too young to play Bond because he was like 24 or 25 at the time. Like he was offered the role for I believe for OHMSS and then also again for Diamonds Are Forever and possibly somewhere in the middle of Moore's run as well. And at that point, it's just sort of the timing didn't work out after View to a Kill. It's like, okay, Roger Moore is seriously not coming back this time. For real, we promise. For real, real. So the race is on to find a new James Bond. And it was almost Sam Neill. That would have been a direction to go. Yeah. Most people will know Sam Neill from Jurassic Park. Or Event Horizon, if that is scarred into your brain the way it is for me. <laughs> yeah. Or his wonderful Twitter videos with of him on his farm in New Zealand. <laughs> but I mean, we had an Aussie play Bond in Lazenby, so... Why not someone from New Zealand? No issue there. Everyone loved Sam Neill. They did screen tests. They were like, this guy's great. Like every part of the production crew thought Sam Neill would be awesome in the part, except Cubby Broccoli. <laughs> and if the buck stops anywhere, it's with Cubby. So it wasn't going to be Sam Neill. He really wanted Timothy Dalton, but Timothy Dalton had a conflict and was filming a movie. I'm not entirely sure because... The timing sort of the, the timing obviously shifted. I mean, spoilers, there was no longer a conflict <laughs> by the time they got around to producing the movie, <laughs> but he couldn't do it. And so they said, well, what about that other guy we were thinking of? What's his name? Uh, Pierce Brosnan. That sounds great. Let's get Pierce Brosnan to do it. In fact, great timing. His TV series has just been canceled because Pierce Brosnan was on Remington Steel on NBC. Right. The show had been contracted for seven seasons and NBC had decided to cancel it after four seasons. And then it's a little unclear on how this all actually shook out, but it certainly sounds like NBC got wind that they were interested in having Pierce Brosnan play Bond. And then on like day 56 of the 60 day clause in the contract they decided ah uh, you know what actually not canceled take backsies <laughs> and they did a fifth season in air quotes of remington steel that rather than 22 hour-long episodes was six made for tv movies huh i don't know if maybe they thought that they were like gonna try and get more eyes on remington steel by him also being in bond but 
Cubby Broccoli said, Remington Steele will not be James Bond. Unfortunately for Pierce Brosnan, NBC was like, nah, sorry, you're, we've, we've, we've decided that this, your show is not canceled and you are still under contract. And then Cubby Broccoli was like, well, sorry, that means you're not James Bond. But something had worked out favorably in Timothy Dalton's schedule, and Timothy Dalton is James Bond, at least for the next two movies. Huh. Yeah, what a strange tale to get to this end point. As you were going through this, I looked up, like, Sam Neill circa 1989, because I was like, what did Sam Neill look like in 1989? Because, of course, I know what he looked like in, like, Jurassic Park, which I think was 93, and, and I know what he looks like today, but I was like, what, what would that have looked like? I can see why the crew all were behind Sam Neill. You look at him in in 89. I mean, he looks like Sean Connery. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a really clear Sean Connery look there. And I mean, he's a great actor. I can I I would have liked to live in the alternate universe where those movies got made. That sounds like it would have been quite quite an adventure. Yeah. Would have made for probably a different Living Daylights. Probably, yeah. As it is, the Living Daylights that we did get is definitely, there are some very clear departures right off the bat from previous Bond films. And one of them, obviously, is Bond and the way that he's playing it, because Dalton brings a little bit more of an edge to the character. He's certainly not as affably charismatic as Roger Moore was. Yeah. It's... Look, I've seen Hot Fuzz dozens of times. For those <laughs> who are unaware of what else you may have seen Timothy Dalton in, he plays Simon Skinner in Hot Fuzz, and he's evil in that movie. He's brilliant, but <laughs> I, it's very difficult to not hear like an edge of bad guy in there. If you're wondering where else you might have seen Timothy Dalton, he was in a couple episodes of Doctor Who around 2010. He's the voice of Mr. Pricklepants, in the Toy Story series. Oh, that's where I know him from. <laughs> <laughs> um, very recently, he's Sir Malcolm Murray in Penny Dreadful. And in the Doom Patrol TV series, he is Niles Calder. Doom Patrol is really good. I should check that out. Way better than it has any right to be. I'm also tempted to check out Remington Steel because I remember seeing an episode or two on TV way back and I predict that Remington Steel is not actually really good in the same sort of way. I was just reading the plot synopsis <laughs> and the premise is that Laura Holt, played by Stephanie Zimbalist, is a private investigator who's opened a detective agency, but nobody will hire her because she's a woman. So she gets this right. charismatic con man, makes up a fake name for him, which is Remington Steel, and he pretends to be the private investigator. He's just the pretty face slash muscle while she's doing all of the actual private investigating. I similarly have only seen like one or two episodes in my youth. I don't have like a strong association with the series and like any strong recollection of what like its relative quality. But the hook is good. The, the premise of the show. Yeah, it's an entertaining premise, but I'm pretty sure an NBC comedy drama detective procedural from 1982 is not going to be, you know, gangbusters. You might be right. <laughs> in terms of rewatchability. But, you know, it is fun to rewatch James Bond. <laughs> so let's get into The Living Daylights. Right. That's what this podcast is about. 1987 made for a budget of $40 million, so $91 million today. And with a box office of $191 million or $437 million, so still cracking in at around half a billion dollars. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. 
it feels like in its day, and I mean, possibly even in retrospect, opinion is divided on The Living Daylights. And I think that has a lot to do with sort of what you personally expect out of a Bond movie. Whereas I like to think that we're coming into this being like, look, just let the movie do whatever and have it wash over us because we've enjoyed very silly ones. We've enjoyed much more serious ones. <laughs> Only when they get really, really silly have we been more critical of it. <laughs> I think there is a problem with this movie that was, I think, much more apparent if we look back to Octopussy, because this is still directed by John Glenn, who has directed the last several Bond movies, which is just that a lot of his movies have tonal inconsistency within themselves. And this is clearly a lot more of a grounded Bond film than even View to a Kill was. And yet there are still moments that are very silly. And I don't mind levity in the serious movies. If we go forward to Casino Royale with Daniel Craig, that's a very gritty Bond film that still has some really funny moments. But there are moments in this movie that are pure goofball in contrast to like this movie is violent and bloody like there are yeah. it's not like a gore fest but like generally speaking in the past when we have seen blood it's been like the villain is intentionally cutting bond's arm for sharks that happened in two different roger moore movies now that i think about it but generally speaking you don't see a lot of blood and in this one <laughs> You know, people get killed in kind of grisly fashion. Yeah, there's like full-blown blood spatter in this movie. That leapt out at me immediately. I was just like, whoa, I didn't expect that from a Bond film. Ah, they've discovered the squib. Mm-hmm. It's also, this is something that we haven't actually talked about yet, but I think it is sort of interesting that so much of this era of Bond film is all surrounding Bond and the Russians and the Cold War, which to us, we're, you know, we're re-watching this movie from you know, anywhere between like 30 and 35, 40 years ago, which is also sort of when this was happening. This is all in the past. But I wonder what it was like to go into the theater and watch James Bond taking an active role in a real conflict that was ongoing at the time. Right. Because they don't do that anymore. I mean, we've we've arced back into like supervillains and I don't even know what to, to use as the word. The odd sort of like corporate magnet. Mostly they have arced towards the, the Draxes and the Dr. Knows of the world rather than the Cold War era. And I mean, the movies will grapple with that a little bit as we move forward. I recall that being sort of the era that we're heading into as they come to terms with the fact that the Cold War is over and they no longer have that enemy to play with. Yeah, I mean, that was the first exchange that Judy Dench as M and Bond having golden eyes. She is very dismissive of his existence, even calling him a relic of the Cold War. Right. It is interesting, though, that they haven't they haven't even really tried to engage with the sort of like modern threats. And it's you know what? It's probably to their benefit that they haven't. I don't think today's movie audiences want to see. I mean, this is I certainly don't. I don't want to see James Bond engaging in real conflict with actual entities that are having real literal wars right now. Like that's not right. I, I want escapism, but I'm just it's interesting if anyone felt that way at the time or was there this sense of, yeah, 
fight the Ruskies. Yeah. I mean, the natures of the conflicts and their their general public presence is pretty different, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do I know? I was too young to know at the time or to have a really good sense at the time. So this is all based on survivorship bias of the media that survived from Cold War era that I have seen. It's a good question, but you're right. Like, I, I don't want to see James Bond in the War on Terror, for instance. Yeah. Well, we won't get that, but we will definitely get some East and West Berlin stuff happening here, which is one of the few scenes I remember from this movie, because much like Octopussy, I didn't remember a lot of this going in. I've seen all of them once, because two to three years ago, maybe even longer now, we were doing a weekly rewatch and we got up to Casino Royale. So I'd seen this movie once as part of that, and that might be the only time that I'd seen it. Oh, wow. And so I didn't remember anything, but there were a couple visuals that I was like, oh, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, there's a few things in this movie that stand out as being pretty memorable. But anyhow, what like, why don't we start talking about the content of the film and then we can get into it. So the movie opens with some amazing establishing shots of the Rock of Gibraltar, which, if you're unaware, is at the southwestern tip of Europe, the Iberian Peninsula. It's funny, it's like, it's at the very southern tip of Spain, but it's not Spain. Look, (laughs) England (laughs) thinks it's theirs, and Spain doesn't agree. Right, contested territory. They're not, like, at war over it, but... The way that you get something recognized is if other countries agree with you. And most other countries agree that it is an overseas territory of England. Right. Spain is like, uh, it's, I, I, think it's, I think it's ours. And England's like, uh, mm, no. The UN currently lists Gibraltar as a non-self-governing territory. Okay. That's frankly irrelevant to what we're doing here which is getting amazing establishing shots of the rock of gibraltar (laughs) and then cutting to m in one of his little mobile offices in the back of a troop transport plane (laughs) and he says that he's sending these three double o agents in does he make it clear right off the bat that this is a training exercise pretty much almost immediately okay he's like all right so here's the details of our operation you will be parachuting into the rock of gibraltar in this training exercise the ground forces have been alerted to the fact that you're coming so they will be on high alert i have full confidence that the double o's will do us proud get in there and then they leap off the back of the plane and and rushes back to his desk and stops his papers from flying away why does he have that there i don't know (laughs) see that's that's one of those sort of silly moments but anyway so we get three double o agents yeah parachuting in to gibraltar being defended by the sas some pretty amazing shots of them skydiving into the rock and as they're landing we see somebody watching them with binoculars in the bushes it's almost immediately apparent that that guy's not part of the sas because we had a shot of them wandering around and this guy doesn't look like them yeah he's he's wearing all black headed to all black which is what the double o's are dressed in but not what the SAS are dressed in. They are dressed in standard military garb. So the double O's touch down. We've only seen them from behind so far, and they're wearing sort of goggles and helmets and such so that we can't actually see their faces. In fact, two of them had their actors chosen for passing resemblances or at least giving the impression of Sean Connery and or Roger Moore. Right. I can see that. 
Yeah, so one of them lands and is immediately shot up with paintballs. So he's spotted right away. And the other one, who's not Timothy Dalton, because of course one of these is James Bond, starts scaling the rock side. The man that we saw is at the top of this rope that the double O is climbing up. He gets hit with the paintballs because an SAS guy thinks that he's one of the double O's, and he kills that man with a silenced gun, which of course, because it's a movie, is totally silent. He then puts a note on a carabiner and sends it down the rope to the double O, who reads it and looks pretty shocked and then the guy cuts his rope and he falls to his death and this is where i was like oh gosh because he falls he ends up in like a bloody scraped up pile at the bottom not like a pile. he's still sorry that sounded way worse than it actually was <laughs> he ends up in like a ditch at the bottom of the hill but he he's there's a lot of like his he's all scraped up and there's blood and i you, you wouldn't expect to see that in an earlier bond film we see the third double o's head whip around and there he is timothy dalton as James Bond. He looks over the edge and sees the dead double O, finds the dead SAS man, sees the cut rope, realizes that something is not going right here. Mm -hmm. The man steals a jeep and starts driving down from the top of the Rock of Gibraltar. And this is a super, what, first of all, what a great location. This is a yeah. really cool action sequence with Bond on the roof of this Jeep as it drives down these incredibly narrow switchbacks. A lot of these shots is actually Timothy Dalton. Oh, really? The wide shots are a stuntman, but there's close-up shots where he's obviously like attached to the top of the Jeep with a safety harness, but they are still on this Jeep on these narrow roads. Right. And it, you know, it looks really good. I didn't see any rear projection in this movie. Oh, there's some. There's got to be some. Even at, like, I'm looking at it on my computer screen right now. There are a couple that look pretty rear projection not all of them it's intercut well i think it's on like really narrow stretches where it would have been really difficult to manage a camera in those spaces but definitely a lot of it is is definitely him on top of the jeep you're right one of the great little bits in this whole scene is that none of the sas guys have any idea that anything is wrong They've been put on high alert. It's war games. They've all got paintballs in their guns. They just need to shoot the dudes in black. The only things that have gone wrong here have gone wrong just within the double O's. And so they're not in on it at all. <laughs> yeah. One guy shoots him with the paintballs and Bond keeps running because he's after this guy. And the guy's like, hey, you're out. Stop. So <laughs> they blow through a checkpoint and a guy shoots real rounds because he's run down a guard. And this ignites a fire in the back of this truck, which is carrying explosives, of course. Because of course it is. Bond uses his knife to break through the roof of this because it's fabric roof truck climbs down in and is basically having a fist fight with this guy struggling for control of the wheel with a windshield covered in paintball on these incredibly narrow switchbacks and eventually it goes flying off a cliff bond pulls his reserve chute gets yanked out the back of the jeep as it's falling to the water and explodes it's a pretty cool stunt yeah <laughs> the end of the scene I think is like a little on the nose because Bond's over the water in his parachute and he sees a yacht underneath him. And then we cut to the deck of the yacht and there's a woman on the phone being like, oh, I just can't find a good man. Why can't some... She's, it's very stilted delivery. It's like, why can't some amazing, you know, good looking, dark haired man, roguish adventurer, yeah, yeah. just <laughs> sweep into my life? And then, of course, he lands on the boat with his parachute. 
suit and she offers him a drink. It's in fact even more on the nose that he does like this flip, this acrobatic flip off the canopy that he's on, then grabs the phone from her without even acknowledging that she's there, tells the person on the end of the phone, she'll call you back, calls in to report, right? She doesn't just hand him a drink though, because he's like, I'll report in an hour. And then she's like, would you like a drink? And he's like, better make that too. And it's like, dude, you just had two double O agents killed in the field during a war game that you were a part of by some guy who you have no leads on. Really? This is what I mean with like internal tonal inconsistency. I should say, you know, overall, I was pleasantly surprised by this movie and I really enjoyed it. But there are some some moments like that. Yeah, there, there are a few moments. I think the thing that gets me about this opening scene, like there, a lot of cool stunt work, like there's a lot of sweet stuff here. It's fun. It's fast paced. It's exciting. But it feels like a really poorly executed hook because... One of the things I like in opening scenes like these op- these pre-title sequences is when they have a hook into the film. It doesn't need to be big, but something to be like, here's what's going to set off your adventure, right? Or here's a piece of information that will be important in the puzzle later. And this is one of those, but there's nothing in the scene to indicate that it's one of those. The only thing is that the note is on the carabiner and it gets dropped to the guy, but we don't see what the note is. Like, The hook would be if we saw what was on the note, because we would still have no context for what the content of that note was until later in the film when it's revealed. But we just know there is a note and it's not remarked on or made important in the scene at all, other than the fact that it exists. So the structure of this pre-title scene irks me a little bit because I can see like with a few minor changes, it would have been way stronger. (laughs) Absolutely. I definitely agree. The opening titles are next, and obviously trying to follow on the Barnstormer success of View to a Kill with Duran Duran, they have turned to another very popular, slightly electronic band full of attractive men. In this case, it's (laughs) AHA, known for Take On Me. Yeah. And this song is definitely trying to be another View to a Kill. (laughs) It is. Now... View to a Kill was great, so even if something is only half as good as View to a Kill, that's still quite good. Yeah, yeah. I I have to admit that I've had this in my head for several days, but, you know, it's it's not quite the same level. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you in that regard. I don't think this quite hits View to a Kill in terms of the quality of the song. It's catchy, though. Like, it's a good song. It, it is. There's, like, nothing wrong with it at all. No. It just doesn't stand out quite the same. And I think part of it is it is clearly just like trying to emulate what they had with View to a Kill and not quite getting there. No. Speaking of not quite getting there, the uh, the visual design of this title sequence leaves some things to be desired. I agree with that. It's doing its best. It is. There's, <laughs> but its best is not very good. There's a shot with a woman lying in water. I think the camera just sort of pans away from her, but it looks like she's being dragged out by her feet. Yeah, I mean, I think that's intentional. She, Her eyes are closed. The water is like tinted red as if there's blood in the water. Like, 
I think she is intended to be a corpse. (laughs) The shot that gets me in this one is that like early in the song, a headlight, a car headlight gets superimposed on the screen. Mm -hmm. And like there's there's dancing and whatever going on behind it. And it lingers there. And I'm like, there's going to be a line about headlights. And then they say the headlights fade away. And as soon as they finish saying fade away, it fades away. (laughs) And I'm like, really? That was the best you could come up with? It's one car headlight superimposed over the screen. Uh, all in all, the song is good. The visuals leaves are a little lackluster. This is also John Barry's last movie. Oh. So I'm not sure what that's going to mean score-wise for License to Kill, but I guess we'll have to find out next episode. <laughs> As the titles wrap up, we find ourselves in Bratislava, Czechoslovakia, at a concert. Bond is there a little late with his contact, <laughs> who is the MI6 man at Station V, Vienna. They are in a box seat, and he points out to Bond that there is a man in a box seat across from them with two KGB goons, and this is the man who is going to to defect. This is why they're there, because that's General Yorgi Kozkov, and he is going to be defecting. And this guy's really got his underwear in a bunch to make sure that this whole thing goes well, because he's been working this particular case for some time. Bond sort of pans around the room and makes note of the lead cellist in the orchestra, just sort of makes idle comment about her. And the, the man is like, will you please pay attention? He's kind of a jerk. They don't make you like the Station V chief very much in this scene. They make him seem pretty incompetent all the way through, despite the fact that he's not, or at least like mostly not. He's just really like eye on the prize. Yeah, I never got, is this Saunders? Is that his name? I think it is, yeah. Yeah, this is Saunders played by Thomas Wheatley. I never got incompetent from him, but he's just, he's such a needless wiener. That's a good way to put it. I think the incompetent is like he's a he's a station chief. He's not a double O and he's like quoting regulations to Bond. And as we will see momentarily, Bond reads the situation and reacts to it and does the things that are necessary for the scene to proceed. And Saunders just sort of gets in the way and ends up having his whole plan scrubbed as a result. Yeah. He's just really stuffy and like trying to be in control rather than like letting Bond do his thing, which understandable. It's his operation. He's been working it forever. But the scene casts it as like Bond is the extremely competent one. And this guy's a pencil pusher who's out of his depth. Yeah, that's true. That is true. He makes it really clear that this is his thing. He's going to be delivering the guy. Bond doesn't even get to know the escape route. He just needs Bond there to run sniper support because Kozkov requested him personally, which Bond thinks is a little odd. Mm -hmm. So they go across the street. They set up in a sniper position. I like that Bond is able to transform his tuxedo into a turtleneck so that it's not as visible. Yeah. Saunders gives him a ridiculous looking gun. (laughs) The gun is kind of amazing. I love the gun. Yeah. It's huge. It's massive. The plan is that Kozkov is going to basically do a runner during intermission. And as long as he can get across the street to where they are, then Saunders can make an escape. Mm -hmm. So Bond posts up, keeping an eye out for opposing snipers because they've been tipped off that there will probably be an opposing sniper. Saunders gets out some night vision goggles. Intermission happens. Kozkov and his goons head to the bathroom. Kozkov lets himself out of a bathroom window and Bond spots there is indeed a sniper in the top window of the orchestra building and it is in fact the first cellist 
This is Kara Milovi, played by Mariam Dabo, who was brought in to like read screen tests to be the Bond girl in like screen tests with, for example, Sam Neill and Timothy Dalton. And then they were like, oh, she's great. Another thing that you'll notice in terms of this new bold era of James Bond in, I mean, it was especially egregious in Octopussy, which was tied with Never Say Never Again for most bedtime partners for Bond at four, mm. and then still several in View to a Kill. There is a singular female love interest in this movie, and this is she. And I don't think they sleep together at any point in the film. So it's a frankly a big departure for at least one aspect of james bond they go on a very chaste date they do actually <laughs> she spots koskov heading across the street she looks out of her depth she looks nervous and not really sure of what she's doing saunders spots her tells bond to take the shot and bond makes the call to aim for the gun which he does. He's using a different kind of bullet than Saunders said to use. And so the end result is that she's fine. Her gun got blown out of her hands and she's scared or whatever, but she's dealt with and Koskov is fine and makes it across the street. But Saunders is super pissed off at Bond for, you know, not following protocol. But calm down, buddy. We got there. Bond is positive that something is not right. Like this is weird. And so Bond has decided that he's going to be taking over. Saunders has put Koskov in the trunk. <laughs> Bond is like, that's the first place they'll look. So he lets Koskov out, puts him up in the front seat, and is like, look, I'm taking over. Saunders asks him what the escape route plan is, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, it's a uh, need to know, which is what Saunders said to him earlier, and just takes off and leaves Saunders standing in the alleyway mm -hmm. with the enormous gun. And, and says, I'll meet you at the border in like six hours or whatever. Where? What border? <laughs> <laughs> so the cops are onto them and they have to try and get this guy out of the country he's really happy to see bond he's like oh hello my old friend what's up and gives him big hugs they head to a pipeline station like a oil and gas pipeline station they are met by rosica miklos played by julie t wallace who i'm just reading her imdb page played major iceborg in the fifth element a <laughs> large russian woman who is as bond says their man in town and she's going to help them sneak out or at least she's going to help them sneak koskov out so they get into one of the pipeline maintenance rooms and they put him in a pig hey look it's the return of the pig hey and they name it as a pig in this movie so i was like oh that's the pig okay so they put koskov <laughs> inside this pipeline thing he he looks terrified but hey there's a little pillow in there no to be fair he looks terrified because the very first thing that she said like a the whole plan has been scrubbed and he like nothing is going the way he had anticipated but the first thing rosica says is like you pull that lever when this says 100 if you do it before he becomes borscht and he's like uh i don't like the sound of that but they uh they shove him in they give him a an oxygen mask he's like okay well at least tell me how many times you've done this and just as he's shutting the lid bond says you're the first and you hear him go ah! as the lid shuts on him so of course sending this thing through the pipeline would normally set off some sort of sensors so rosica has to distract the pipeline foreman and she leaves the room brandishing a monkey wrench she's like i'm gonna go deal with the supervisor 
<laughs> and the way that she does that is by walking into the room and dropping her belt, unzipping her clothes. You know, she basically is just like, you and me, we are going to do things. And the guy's like, okay, all right, cool. And then as soon as the things go and they fire the thing and Bond leaves, then she zips her clothes back up and goes, what kind of woman do you think I am? And storms out of the room. <laughs> So then we cut to Saunders at the border station, standing next to the east-west, like the Trans-Siberian east-west oil pipeline. Yeah, this is the Trans-Siberian pipeline. This is a real thing. Yeah, and he's just leaning on the pipeline, waiting for Bond to arrive. And so as he's leaning against the pipeline, he suddenly hears this low rumble off in the distance, rapidly approaching, and it just goes through the pipeline behind him, causing him to sort of leap away from the pipeline and look at it in wonder. It crosses the border and goes into this brick stone building where Q and another MI6 agent are waiting. The pig comes to a stop and they pull him out of the pig. They run him up to the roof. He gets in a Harrier jet and the jet takes off vertically off the roof of this building and flies him to safety. It's weird that Q is there, but I guess he has to make sure that the pig is working. I like that Q has to like take a little pill to calm his nerves. <laughs> This is just Q once again sort of being resigned to being a field agent because he's a familiar face. Yeah, he's never happy about it. The plane takes off and flies off to the, into the distance. Saunders and, you know, the various border guards and whatnot can see this plane because it's just across the border. But none of them have any idea what has happened because they were not involved the pig went through the pipeline while this is happening bond has picked up saunders at the border and they are they are literally like at passport control as the harrier jet flies away and saunders sort of like gives a questioning look to bond and bond gives a sort of like i don't know man look back to saunders they hop back in the car and and drive into i think they're in austria at this point mm -hmm. in the car bond says formally this will still be your operation we don't we like we don't have to tell anybody that things went sideways saunders is really upset with him for like you know not following protocol and not following his orders i guess and bond says i only kill professionals and that girl was terrified and i probably scared the living daylights out of her hey we got the title of the movie <laughs> we cut to london to universal exports where Bond and Q are there. They're looking through female KGB assassins because they are trying to, like, Bond doesn't have any leads. He doesn't know who this cellist is. So they're trying to, like, these are all the KGB assassins that we know of. The The first one is, like, another large woman, who, like, in a leotard. She does gymnastic-style assassinations. And then there's, like, this little girl. <laughs> she poses as a child, and her weapon is explosive teddy bears. And Bond is like, none of these are right. <laughs> we are so far from the realm of what I am looking for right now. Maybe we should do this another time. Yeah. That's just as Money Penny walks in. This is Money Penny, played by Caroline Bliss, who does not have a huge amount of movie credits to her name, but she plays Money Penny in both of the Timothy Dalton Bond movies. She is a lot more direct in her flirtations with Bond than Lois Maxwell was. Yes, but also a lot more pining. Yeah, it's definitely a big contrast to Money Penny in the Brosnan films. But I mean, also, she doesn't get a lot of screen time to do much with as Money Penny never did. Granted, it does feel a lot more like she like actually seriously wants Bond. Mm -hmm. And it's not just like a workplace flirtation, kind of like they're having fun with each other. It's like, no, actually, she has a huge crush on Bond and wants to take him to dinner, preferably soon, immediately. Now, why are you walking away, James? 
Q is very excited because one of his boffins is ready to test one of their new devices, which is a boombox that fires rockets. He calls it a ghetto blaster. Yeah, they're working on it for the Americans. That's the funniest part. That's way funnier than calling it a ghetto blaster. (laughs) I mean, a boombox is in and of itself a good pun. Yeah. The most interesting part of that, by the way, actually, is that the that day on set, they were visited by Charles and Diana. Oh, really? Yeah. And the special effects guy suggested that Prince Charles might enjoy setting off the rocket. And so there's behind the scenes footage (laughs) of him just just off shot. He's like four feet from the thing with the VFX panel hitting the ignition button to fire the rocket off for the actual shot that's in the movie oh that's amazing also oh that's so good the way that they film these things she might not have even been on set at the time but caroline bliss did play lady diana spencer in a tv movie called charles and diana (laughs) which is kind of funny it's a small world (laughs) and there's apparently also from that set visit there's a famous photo of diana breaking a bottle over charles's head because then the vfx guy was like oh you want to have a little bit more fun you know because diana didn't get to do anything here why don't you uh why don't you smash a breakaway (laughs) bottle over his head not it wasn't a surprise everyone knew it was gonna happen but there's a fantastic photo of her just like and they both have huge grins on their face and there's glass flying everywhere and of course that got printed in every newspaper So do we actually get any information in this scene? We must, because, like, the scene has to have a purpose, right? One would pray. Yes, Moneypenny does, in fact, have some information for Bond. In fact, it's Bond asking Moneypenny for help. Moneypenny tells Bond that M wants to see him and, in fact, also to stop by Harrods on the way over, because apparently Bond is now an errand boy. Bond asks Moneypenny (laughs) to check into anything involving female cellists from that part of the world that's right also m wants to see bond not at m's office but at the safe house where they're keeping Kozkov. we cut to near there where there is a man going for a jog past a milk float i mentioned this in the casino royale episode that's what they call those milk trucks so a jogger goes by with his headphones on the milkman does his deliveries and then when he gets back to his milk float the jogger is now hiding in the bushes and strangles him with the cable to his headphones i like the use of the music in this scene He's got his headphones on when he's running and you can sort of like faintly hear it in that scene. The milkman comes back and there's like, we don't see the guy hiding. He happens to be behind the fence, but the scene is empty, right? And then the milkman walks into it and there's music playing and it's the same music that you could hear the runner was listening to previously, but it's not muffled anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then he like comes up and grots the guy with the the wire the milkman notices the music and it's like huh that's weird i, I wonder but yeah. <laughs> the stage setting for that scene is really good like it's actually quite effective yeah it's great this guy and the character's name is necros which is <laughs> a little weird i wonder if he's a good guy yeah, guess what he sure ain't he's played by andreas wisniewski who was primarily a dancer before this, but has picked up several film roles since, including one of the bad guys in Die Hard. He was also in Mission Impossible in 1996. Okay. And a different character in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol in 2011. (laughs) 
Bond arrives at the safe house, gets searched and everything on his way in, and he arrives inside with his gift basket from Herod's. Kozkov is so happy to see him. You know, oh, James, thank you for saving my life. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm so glad you got all this stuff from Herod's. The food here is terrible. And he pulls out a bottle of Bollinger and M is just like, what? And Bond is like, what does he say? He said the, the brand on the list was subpar. I made a few substitutions. Yeah, it's like I I took the liberty of making a few substitutions because the the brand on the list was subpar as he hands M the like the expense receipt. Yeah. <laughs> and M looks at the receipt with his eyes like bugging out and then sort of angrily folds it and tucks it into his pocket. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as like Koskov is like oh beluga caviar oh bollinger <laughs> you treat me so well <laughs> so while m who is there and frederick gray who is there are talking to Koskov, necros who has now disguised himself as the milkman arrives and the guy the things like what happened to the other milkman They're like oh he's not here like, okay well go around the back i guess he pats him down. The thing is, these guys are competent at their jobs. I actually really like this, that all the other MI6 or whoever, if they're MI6 or SAS, all these other people are very competent at their jobs. It's just that Necros is incredibly hyper-competent. Yeah, it's just like incredibly convincing. This whole sequence of events is actually pretty good because like when he's running, he's wearing like a white running outfit, right? Mm -hmm. Which then when he poses as the milkman, he's like, okay, well, I'm already wearing white, which the milkman was wearing. And now I can put on the white apron and, and go. And he changes his whole persona because when he was running, he was like posing as an, as an American, like a tourist because he like sort of like bumped into the milkman. And now he's playing this like putsy sub substitute milkman because the guy at the front gate is like, where's the normal guy? And he's like, I don't know. He got down with the flu. And and then the guy's like, all right, well, fine. Come out and I'll pat you down. And and he, he does the whole like, hey, watch it, man. He just feels like a 20-year-old doesn't give a heck kind of dude here. And he's like convincing everybody that he's just a putz. Yeah. But he, he like fully has evil intent it's great it all feels well planned it really does and he'll make one more transformation before the scene is over but inside koskov is now spilling the beans or at least some of the beans to frederick gray the minister of defense and m and saying that a different russian general general pushkin is hungry for war and he's going to see to it that war happens he's really he's pushing internally for this and he's gonna he has secret plans that he's gonna be undertaking to make this happen yeah they have a list they have a list of agents that they are going to start killing and the expectation is that if they start killing british intelligence agents including the double o's then the uk will retaliate and that will escalate tensions between the two nations yeah there's a stenographer writing all of this down frederick gray and m decide that they need to leave and talk to the prime minister and other ministers basically immediately also in this scene bond smokes a cigarette that felt so weird to me for some reason. It hasn't happened in a while. I don't remember the last time he ever smoked a cigarette. I guess Connery's era at some point? Connery for sure. Yeah, Connery for sure. It just feels out of place in 1987. I, maybe it's just because I'm not used to seeing anyone smoke ever these days. <laughs> yeah. So Em and Sir Grey take off and Bond starts to pack up to get ready to go as well. And, and we cut back to the kitchen where the milkman now... The assassin is making his way in, and and there's a chef in the kitchen carving a piece of meat with a with an electric with an knife. Electric That'll be important. Knife. Uh, <laughs> he comes in. He's like, "Oh, just put the milk over there." So he does, and then he immediately turns around and strangles the chef. 
all of this is going according to plan. He he like strangles the chef to death and he goes to put him in a locker freezer, right? Like a, a chest freezer. Everything would be fine if it weren't for the fact that one of the wait staff happens to walk into the kitchen just as the feet are still sticking out of the freezer. And this leads to uh, a fight between the waiter and the assassin. The, the waiter guy manages to get on the horn and be like, security station, we have... And then the fight starts and, and he doesn't get his message through. So they fight fight each other all through the kitchen and it's it's rough like they're throwing each other around and then the assassin like gets a hold of the electric knife and menacing this dude with it and they have like a knife fight with this electric knife they end up over by the stove where there's water boiling and like they huck a pot of boiling water at each other the assassin like slams the chef down on the active cooking grill and then presses his face into the grill like scarring his face like giving him like charred steak lines on his face the assassin also like gets burnt by the stove every terrible thing you can imagine happening to a person in a production kitchen (laughs) probably happens to a person in this scene and it finally ends when the assassin manages to sort of like kick this like waiter guard guy into a corner and then just upend him with a cast iron pan across the face and head renders him unconscious and at this point the security station is like we didn't get your message what's going on and so he leans over and says into the thing it's like everything's all right but we we have a serious gas leak in the kitchen we have dangerous gas in the kitchen you need to evacuate the building immediately of course the security station out front starts evacuating the building immediately this is not a short fight scene either and i love that i mentioned the competence this guy is putting up a hell of a fight like these two have a good fight oh yeah this guy's not a pushover the waiter basically because he's secret service i guess yeah all of the staff including the kitchen staff on a bc ferry are transport canada certified in the case of an emergency (laughs) i assume all mi6 safe house staff are trained field agents in the case of an emergency they will direct you to the nearest lifeboat that was a very funny joke for anyone who's uh, <laughs> lives in victoria or vancouver yeah six people will laugh very hard at that one other brief aside is that there is a parrot hanging out in the kitchen that the chef feeds a little nibble to at the beginning of the scene this is max the parrot well i don't know the character's name but this is the same parrot from the havelock's ship in for your eyes only of course don't know why but i figured he was yeah he doesn't have any importance in the movie or scene really other than just being kind of spooked by the fact that there's a fight going on the evacuation of the building gives the assassin the opportunity to enact his plan because chaos is now erupting and what is his plan you may ask Well, he picks up his little basket of milk, (laughs) walks into the house, picks one up and lobs it at some guards. And it turns out that he's got milk bottle shaped grenades. He wings it at a couple of guards who spot him, blows them up. This, of course, to everyone outside the building reads as the gas leak has exploded. So still all the people outside know there's an emergency, but not the nature of the emergency. The assassin, having just blown these guys up, sees that Kozkov is here. And so he pulls out his gun, goes on the pursuit, and continues to lob milk grenades at any guards that come his way, causing additional explosions. And he catches up with Koskov and the stenographer in the dining room where, where he was being debriefed. He gets them both at gunpoint, takes the stenographer's notes off the typing machine, and throws them in the fire, ejects the tape from the recorder, 
that they were using to record the interview, tucks that in his pocket and ushers them out of the room. Upon getting to the kitchen again, sees that there's an ambulance helicopter flying in. And Kozkov says, who's that for? And the assassin says, you, and beans him over the head with the back of his gun. (laughs) And then tells the stenographer to hold him and proceeds to change costumes again, now into a doctor's outfit with a white lab coat, because of course he's still wearing white, pulls out a stethoscope and wraps it around his neck. He just unbuttons his white coat and puts on a stethoscope. And it's like, now I'm a doctor. Right. And it totally works. Yeah. And he had previously gone on the radio and said, there's injuries here, call the emergency services. So when this helicopter arrives, the security guys are just like, oh, that's the emergency services that we called. Right. And it's not because they're they're here too quickly. Yeah. The stenographer carts Koskov out to the helicopter where paramedics on the helicopter strap him onto a gurney and load him into the helicopter. And the assassin gets on the helicopter and the helicopter flies away. And the helicopter flies away as the ambulance and fire truck are driving up the driveway of this building. And the stenographer turns around and just starts waving at anybody that will pay attention to him to let them know what has just transpired but of course at this point the helicopter is already gone so then we cut to m's office where m and sir gray are not impressed i think they say we're the laughing stock of the international intelligence community they do in as many words they are not impressed with the situation that has unfolded now bond is suspicious because even while koskoff was telling m and gray about pushkin's plan bond looked suspicious because he knows general pushkin and he's like that doesn't sound like him yeah he thinks it was a very unusual story and now that this has happened there are just too many things that are a little weird that are to bond adding up to this whole thing feels wrong right Also in the scene, M gives Bond a piece of evidence that showed up from Gibraltar, which is the note that was sent down the carabiner towards 004. And it says, smirt spionum, which means death to spies. And M confirms that Bond was on Pushkin's list as well, or at least the list that Koskov provided them claiming it was Pushkin's list. Right. What's happening in the scene is that M is sending Bond to Tangier's to assassinate General Pushkin because Kozkov told them that's where Pushkin was going to be and they have to put a stop to it. Bond has reservations because he doesn't believe Pushkin is capable of this. So M says, all right, well, I'll pull 008 in from Hong Kong. He doesn't know Pushkin personally, so he won't care. And Bond assures M, no, no, I will do this. So then we get another Q scene. Q is working on a couple of gadgets, one of which is an Aston Martin. This is an Aston Martin V8 Vantage Volante, Mm. according to to the IMCDB. They're putting the the roof on it. Q bonks his head on the roof in a cute little comedy bit. But the Vantage is not what we are here to look at. It's just, for the purposes of this scene, it's basically just product placement. What we are here to look at is Q's newest gadget. Which is different product placement. (laughs) Different product placement. The gadget in this one is what was likely absolutely fascinating technology at the time. It's a key ring finder. If you have this keychain on your key ring and you, you lose your keys in a room somewhere, you can whistle and it will beep and tell you where the keys are. Q has modified this device. It still works for that purpose, but if you whistle the first few bars of Rule Britannia, it emits a smoke, a knockout gas cloud, basically, which has a range of about five feet and will render anyone affected by it. I can't think of the word. Will disorient them for about 30 seconds. 
he has Bond test it. He puts a gas mask on while, while this is taking place. It has one other feature, which is that it also has a self-destruct mechanism. It can be used as a bomb. It's magnetic on the back, which Bond tests by attaching it to Q's gas mask on Q's face. And Q says, all right, and, you know, we thought your activation code would be most appropriate. It's a wolf whistle. And Bond gets this, like devilish grin on his face and says oh you mean like and goes to start whistling <laughs> and q is like no stop you're about to blow my head off bond does not in fact blow q's head off despite having threatened his life and there's one other gadget that he gets here which is the keys that are attached to the key ring which are basically like a global or a universal skeleton key q says the keys on this will open 90 percent of the world's locks which no doubt will come in useful mm-hmm I do love there's a bit at the end of the scene with a couch that eats a man. Looks really entertaining. Anyway, <laughs> Money Penny interrupts and says that she's found some information about that cellist. And indeed, it is that cellist. And she's returning to the conservatory in a day or two after suffering an injury that they don't specify. But it's the injury from holding the gun that was shot out of her hands when she completely failed at being a sniper. So Bond asks Money Penny for travel documents to Tangiers via Bratislava and to keep it quiet. Then he tells Q that he's taking the Aston Martin for a spin, much to Q's protest and indignation. Mm -hmm. And so we cut to Bratislava and we're back at the concert hall. Kara is doing a uh, recital at the concert hall, which Bond is in the audience watching. Yeah, it's just a quartet. It's like the middle of the day, so it's not there's like maybe four or five people in the audience. I imagine this is just sort of like a practice that the public can attend if they want kind of thing. So we cut outside. Kara is walking out of the concert hall with her cello in its case. and She walks past a man who's standing outside. The man turns and it's Bond. And she gets on a streetcar. Bond gets on the streetcar and continues to watch her just from the end of the car. And she's looking a little skittish and like suspicious, but not at anything in particular. We cut to a, a shot from outside the streetcar a bunch of police vehicles and these two men in like black leather jackets walking away from a car towards the streetcar. One of the men gets onto the streetcar and walks to the back where Kara is trying to look sort of inconspicuous and he walks right up to her and flashes a badge which we don't see grabs her escorts her off the streetcar leaving her cello behind bond watches this and does nothing he does not intervene he just observes we assume they are some kind of secret police presumably they are like the kgb or some sort of secret police even though specifically what is not made clear but as they are walking her across the street back to the car that they exited from we see a man step out. He begins to walk towards them. This is, we will learn, Pushkin, as played by John Rice davies Yeah, and we know it's him, actually, because Bond has already seen a headshot of him. So the audience already knows what he looks like. I don't know if I need to give you a rundown of where you might recognize John Rice davies from. But do it anyhow. It's a lot of things. <laughs> he was Gimli in Lord of the Rings. He was in Indiana Jones. He was in Sliders. Oh, God. So many things. He was in Gargoyles. <laughs> <laughs> the Untouchables TV series. The Legend of Prince Valiant TV series. Pirates of Dark Water. He was a prolific actor, and it's likely you've seen him in something. Matt said was. He's not dead. Oh, granted. He remains a prolific actor. In fact, on his IMDb page, which I'm looking at, there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 10 projects that are listed as being in post-production or pre-production that he's attached to. Ah, he is still to be a prolific actor. 
he is the prolific actor of movies past, present, and yet to come. <laughs> Probably best known as Gimli or for his roles in Indiana Jones, I would assume. Probably. When we were watching the movie, Kathleen was like, oh, John Reese davies playing a bad guy? That's sort of unlike him. He's so likable. That ends up being really relevant, actually. Spoilers. Uh- <laughs> All right, so the, the streetcar drives away and Bond watches on from the streetcar as Pushkin basically puts Kara in the car. Cut to Bond getting off the streetcar and he gets off the streetcar carrying Kara's cello. He walks into a nearby building and into the bathroom with this large cello case and the janitor in the bathroom is a little confused by what he's doing as he wedges it into this tiny bathroom stall and then tries to make a ruckus to not make it obvious what's happening, but the the janitor is like, what is he doing with that cello in the toilet stall? <laughs> so anyhow, Bond opens the cello case and he like flushes the toilet to make a, a racket. He finds in the cello case Kara's rifle. He starts to inspect the rifle and it's got the bullet hole in it where he shot it. And then he pulls the ammunition out of it and they're blanks. That gives him something to think about. This seems like a real amateur assassin move, which granted Kara is. Kara left the if found, please return to address card in her cello case, which she has the rifle that she was tasked with assassinating a Russian general in, which just does not feel like the kind of thing you want to leave in your cello slash rifle case. She may not be a professional hitman. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Bond takes out the the like the address card, looks at it, then we cut to Kara and Kara is returning like she's getting off a a streetcar and returning home. She walks into her apartment, you know, she unlocks the door and she walks into her apartment and her entire apartment has been turned upside down. The secret police have been here and been through every single thing she owns with no care or respect for the state of the apartment when when she returns home. While she's sort of surveying the damage, Bond walks in with the cello case and says, you left this on the streetcar, and then comments, you know, the KGB made quite a mess, and introduces himself, but his cover story is that he is a friend of Yorgi's, who has been sent to collect her and help her evade the KGB so that she can rejoin him in the West. She doesn't know that he's been retaken by the KGB at this point. That's right. Yeah, she thinks he's still free. Bond knows that something is up, so he's just trying to play this position is like i'm oh i'm a friend of yorgi's i'm he sent for you and i'm i'm here to collect you and so he ingratiates himself to her in that way and we get a little bit of information about kara here we know that she is basically yorgi's girlfriend and that she was put up to being the sniper because Georgi was trying to fake his own defection. She had blanks. She was supposed to make it look convincing. Which Bond, in his position as Georgi's friend, is like, neat, cool, that would be a great plan, you know, because he's just like on side as far as she's concerned. Right. Also, he notices that there is a man outside the building being very conspicuous, and he says that they let her go because they want to follow her. They want to see where she's going next. Mm -hmm. I love this bit. It's so good. Yeah. Bond gets her to pack some stuff up and then we see a bunch of stuff from the point of view of the man in the car watching the door. He sees a man come out, which is Bond, walk down the street and get into his Aston Martin, which is parked further down the street. Then we see Kara come out with her cello case, walk into a phone booth between 
the door and the Aston Martin, wearing a big cloak and a red hat. Then a streetcar goes by between the phone booth and the man who's watching. And there's a long shot. We see the whole streetcar go by. After the streetcar goes by, Bond and the Aston Martin pull away. And the guy is like, huh, all right, and keeps watching the phone booth. Once they're out of range, we cut to the Aston Martin and Kara is hiding in the Aston Martin. After a few minutes, the man goes and looks and realizes that what is in the phone booth is a coat and a hat sitting on a cello case. And they use the cover of the streetcar to get away. Before they can skip town, Kara demands that they go back to the conservatory to retrieve her cello. Because it's not just any cello, it's Stradivarius. Though actually, we don't find that out until later. The scene is so good, though. She's like, I'm not leaving without my cello. And he's like, we have 10 minutes until they figure out what's happened. There's no way. She's like, I will not go without my cello. And then we cut to a shot of Bond looking exasperated in the driver's seat. As you can see out the window, Kara like running out of the conservatory, carrying her cello. And then they have this ridiculous, almost physical comedy scene of like trying to shove this giant cello case into the back seat of the Aston and they finally like get it in and the passenger seat pushed back and Kara hops in and Bond just looks at her and is like, why didn't you take up the violin? (laughs) (laughs) It It does have such comedy timing of Bond doing like the absolutely no way cut to Bond waiting in the car. It's very silly. After the guy finds out she's not in the phone booth, we cut to the Aston Martin now much further away, heading up into the mountains and Bond tunes the radio to the police band and she's like you can get the police band he says oh yeah it's an optional extra because he's still trying to play it off like he's not a super spy yeah i like the fact that we we are now far enough you know this is the 15th bond movie we're far enough into the bond movies that we do not need to establish even a little bit that the car has gadgets yeah right like for the audience yeah if bond is driving a q branch car it's got gadgets one of my favorite things about this one it's like this is one of those tonally silly scenes that feels almost out of place in the rest of the movie but we run down more car based gadgets in this scene than i think we have in all the previous movies combined there are everything so comes out in this one <laughs> It's ridiculous. It starts with the, like, getting the police band. Kara translates what is coming over the police band for him, and she says, oh, they are looking for a foreign car driven by a man with a passenger. And as she's translating for them, a police car drives by in the other direction. It immediately, like, pulls a skidding turn on this slushy highway. Lights go up, and it starts chasing them, and it pulls up alongside them. Bond opens a control panel and presses a button marked laser. One of the wheel hubs fires a laser beam that hits the police car, and then Bond slows relative to the pace of the police car, and it drags along the entire length of the body. Then Bond slams on the brakes, so the police car slams on the brakes, and the entire upper body of the car complete with like the police officers and everything in the car slides off the wheelbase and Kara's like what just happened and he's like oh salt corrosion (laughs) the actions in this scene are in dissonant contrast to how it is shot yeah it's shot like a super serious action scene but everything that happens in it is so goofy (laughs) yeah it is really weird like i I'm not docking the movie major points here, but it is just like, this is very tonally 
all over the map. Yeah. The cops commandeer a shipping truck to set up a roadblock. So Bond fires missiles at it. He says, is this an optional extra? Eventually she figures out something is up, but I do like that he keeps making excuses for all of the things that happens. Mm -hmm. Blows the truck up and drives through the fire. Cops left behind at the roadblock start open fire on them from behind. The bullets just ping off the bulletproof rear window, which Bond remarks is like, amazing, the safety glass they have these days. (laughs) Their way is cut off by a snow plow and a tank which forces them onto a side road where they are now pursued by this or i guess snow grooming machine not a snow plow he asks kara to look at the map and find out what's up ahead and she's like nothing just the lake and he's like what and the car drives down past a guy who's setting up to do some ice fishing it looks like and they drive into what i guess is an ice fishing shed and then out onto the lake so the aston martin is now driving across this frozen lake with a shed on it being shelled by the artillery squad driving the snow grooming machine. Eventually, they leave the shed behind just as it explodes. A police car joins them on the ice. A mortar shell blows off the rubber of one of their tires, leaving Bond driving on three tires and a rim. And I don't even understand within the universe of this movie how this works but he drives in a circle around the police car the rim cutting into the ice leaving a big circle of ice loose so the chasing police car sinks very slowly on this piece of ice we get to see it in the background it's pretty funny actually it's very funny but it's like (laughs) how did how did you do that how the ice is like half a foot thick i don't all right so the way i conceptualize this in my mind Uh the rim scored the ice and then the police car drove onto the circle that had been scored out of the ice and the weight of the police car caused the ice to crack where it had been scored creating a floating ice circle that as we see tips it doesn't sink horizontally it tips because the weight of the police car is not balanced on the center circle but that's that's how i get it because that's how you cut glass right like you score glass and then you flex it and it breaks along the score as opposed to breaking randomly i'll allow it (laughs) he then puts out the snow skids because it has snow skids and extends the snow spikes from the tires And so Bond is now absolutely bombing along the frozen lake surface, being chased by another police car to a wall with some stairs. He engages the rocket motor to get a boost (laughs) of speed, uses the stairs like a ramp and flies completely over the wall and down the hill on the other side. The pursuing police car careening headfirst into the guard station shed. Bond and Kara now barreling downhill go through some trees that break off the snow skids and the car just buries itself in a snowbank. So they get out and try to get away on foot. Bond hits the self-destruct on the car. Q's going to be so annoyed. It just had a fresh coat of paint. Yeah. But they do extract the cello. And so after we see that they're being pursued by men on skis, we cut to Bond and Kara sitting in either half of an open cello case, using it like a sled, with Bond using the stand from the cello as a rudder while they 
barrel at top speed down the hill with the great quip from bond it this might in fact actually be my like quip of the movie as bond quips to kara i'm glad i insisted you bring the cello (laughs) (laughs) there's another great joke in this scene too but as they're sledding down this mountain the skiers and what have you are like shooting at them with rifles Bond puts a hole in the cello, like like gets hit by a bullet, and he just looks at Kara's like, sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we then cut as this chase is happening to a border station at the bottom of the mountain. There are these two sort of hapless looking border guards. We're passing from Czechoslovakia into Austria. That is what this border is. The two hapless looking border guards looking up the hill at these two people riding a cello case chased by 10 guys on skis and like an APC all firing bullets at the people on the cello. <laughs> And so they're just standing there and like Bond reaches into his pocket, pulls out a passport and just says, wave this at them. And there's like a barricade across the street, right? So as they slide in, he's like, all right, now duck. And they slide under the barricade. Bond tosses the the cello in the air. So it goes over the barricade. Bond grabs it. And the two guards are mystified by what's going on as Bond shouts from the cello case, we have nothing to declare. And Kara follows up with only a cello. And then they just keep on going like down the road away from the <laughs> checkpoint into Austria. <laughs> I, th- I thought the Dalton movies were supposed to be grittier. <laughs> this whole scene is awesome. I love this chase. It's so good. It's so silly. What I said was not a criticism. Man, I love this chase. It's dumb as hell, but it works so well and it it, like it works on the strength of the performances of the key characters in it bond and kara both manage this scene really really well the only other characters in the scene that are characters are the poor hapless border guards who are as perplexed by everything they've just seen as the audience is (laughs) yeah in tangier we see general pushkin arrive at a location where there's someone watching with a camera from across the street and there is something to do with a boat that is out in the water nearby. We only know it's important because the camera zooms in on it. We don't find out what's up with it right now. Pushkin enters the building and a man in military uniform acting like he is in the military will find out he is not, says that the colonel will be with him shortly. And Pushkin wanders around a hallway of statues of, and I'm using very heavy air quotes here, great leaders of the world, because <laughs> this is people like Caesar and Napoleon and uh, Hitler, but they all have the same face. And the camera pans past them, and then we see another man. It's meant to look like he's another one of the statues, but it's actually the person himself. This is the character of Brad Whitaker, played by Joe Don Baker. I love Joe Don Baker. Joe Don Baker plays himself in every movie he's in. He really does. It's one of the things that's more confusing, also based on proximity of film. But he is another one of those actors that will play two prominent characters in Bond movies. Yeah. Because he plays this role, and then he also plays the CIA agent, like Bond's basically Felix Leiter substitute character in Goldeneye. Yeah, Wade. Wade, that's right. That character returns in Tomorrow Never Dies. Right. Which I had forgotten about until I was looking at Joe Don Baker's IMDb page. Now, I first learned of Joe Don Baker in the Mystery Science Theater episode, Mitchell. (laughs) Mitchell, 
where Jodan Baker plays the worst detective. <laughs> He's just this slovenly, unlikable butthole of a man who is ostensibly presented as the main character and romantic interest in this movie. I mean, it's, it's called Mitchell and he plays Mitchell in Mitchell. And it's, <laughs> oh my God. Don't watch Mitchell, but definitely watch the Mystery Science Theater <laughs> episode of Mitchell. It is one of the best episodes of MST3K. <laughs> Joe Don Baker is Brad Whitaker. Now, who is Brad Whitaker? What? Why is he dressed like this? Is he like the head of the like military for Tangiers? Is he like the the dictator? He must be the dictator for Tangiers. No, he's an arms dealer and a military weeb. He really is a military weeb. I know there's more specific names for the kind of nerd that he is. He's obsessed with military strategy and war reenactment. He has like miniature dioramas of famous wars that are all rigged for sound and lights. I assume he painted these miniatures himself. He has all these statues of, again, people he considers great leaders Genghis Khan that guy I mentioned before Adolf Hitler but all with his face on the statues this is a deeply weird man <laughs> he's also just cosplaying military rank oh yeah because we do learn that he was he was expelled from West Point he did not actually become a military officer he has never served in a war and the movie leaves it a little bit sort of ambiguous as to whether he has in his role as an arms dealer sort of created something of a PMC because like all of his guards treat him like he is the leader of a military organization and and he has various ranks of guards and whatnot and and he runs it like a military organization but he is not military it is all not pretend but certainly role play so Pushkin comes in and says they will not be doing business. So now the audience knows that Pushkin is not the warmonger that Kozkov told the Minister of Defense and M that he was. He says they don't want to buy anything and he wants his money back. To which Whitaker responds, but I, I've already paid the money to bring the stuff in that you want. And Pushkin says, we've been monitoring your bank accounts. We know that you haven't paid or received any money in that scale so we'd like our money back we're not going to be buying your weapons this was set up by someone else and i'm not interested the scene ends with pushkin basically dressing him down as you say being like you didn't serve you you're playing dress up essentially is what he says which whitaker does not like to hear no whitaker also is just not very shrewd <laughs> No. <laughs> For the reasons we've already discussed, but he also just like gives away who it is that he does business with, right? Because he he says in this scene, he's like, I'll, I've done all these arms deals with with Kozkov before. That's this is why I have such a great reputation. You should know about my great reputation because of how many successful arms deals I've had with Kozkov. <laughs> your <laughs> your collaborator and member of your organization. And so, like, he's not really playing very smart here. He just wants to keep his money. Yeah. It's interesting looking at sort of him as the bad guy, because he is the bad guy, but Koskov is also, like, presented almost as an equal amount of the bad guy in this movie, even though it does, like, all roads lead to Whitaker here. But he's very atypical 
for a Bond villain. Yeah, I, th- I think Koskov and Whitaker both are the bad guys combined, right? Whitaker is the final boss fight of the movie, but I don't know that I would really credit him as being the villain of the film in as much as like Koskov is really the villain of the film. Well, the movie presents Whitaker that way because Koskov gets defeated and then there's the climactic and now we defeat the big bad guy scene. But sometimes those climactic now we defeat the big bad guy scene is now we defeat the henchman. The big bad guy is not always the last one to die. That's absolutely true. They, they are very sort of even. But yeah, you're right. Like Whitaker is the big boss fight of this movie, as I say. <laughs> but it's Koskov's plan, right? Like it's not Whitaker's plan. Whitaker's just benefiting from... Is it not Whitaker's plan? Koskov is like positioned as working for Whitaker. Maybe I'm just misremembering the end of the movie. Well, we'll get there. Maybe I'll correct myself. Maybe, maybe the YouTube comments will stop the podcast and correct me now before I can correct myself 45 minutes from now. <laughs> Try and stop them. <laughs> Bond and Kara arrive in Vienna and they take a horse-drawn carriage around and basically sort of go on a date, essentially. And after checking into a phenomenal hotel where the man at the front desk who recognizes Bond is surprised to hear that he wants two rooms and not one. Your usual room, Mr. Bond? No, I think I'll need something with two rooms tonight. Oh. Bond notices Kara looking around the Cartier store in the lobby and says, oh, do you, do you like this dress? Let's buy it. And she says, well, who's going to pay for it? And he goes, well, Yorgi, of course. And then we <laughs> cut to Yorgi chilling beside the pool surrounded by women. He's at Whitaker's place in Tangiers. And then one of Whitaker's little dress up cronies comes along and says that Whitaker wants to talk to him. So he and Necros <laughs> go and I can't get over that name. He and Necros <laughs> go and talk to Whitaker, who is chowing down on an enormous lobster. Necros in a in nothing but an, a vibrantly, violently blue speedo. It's like Klein blue. It's like hard to look at. Like it's so vibrant. Whitaker tells Koskov that Pushkin wants the money back and Koskov replies not to worry. They've convinced the British that Pushkin is a problem and they're going to send their best man, James Bond, to kill him. Whitaker says that he's not convinced and that Necros can kill him instead. Necros is like, "Ah, they kind of know how I operate, so I don't know if that's going to work. And Whitaker says, look, if Bond kills him, awesome. If not, you have to do it. Yeah, there's there's a conference happening in Vienna. And so he's like, you have until the end of the conference. Back in Vienna, Bond and Kara are taking in the theater. And during the intermission, Kara excuses herself to the ladies room and Bond catches up with Saunders, who is happily less of a wiener this time. Like he's actually he's a little irritated initially, but then is actually really helpful and competent which I liked because I was briefly worried. I was like, oh, is he going to double cross them or something? But no, he's actually just, he does his job. Yeah. And his job is to get travel documents for them so they can escape. I like this. Bond gives him passport sized photos of her because they went to a photo booth and it's just it's just implied that they went to a photo booth on their day bumming around Vienna. So he's like, here you go. I took these earlier. He also relays the entire plan as he knows it to Saunders at this point. He's like, listen, she's innocent. She was set up. The defection was intended to trick us. Koskov is not who he claimed to be and is now back in the hands of the Russians. But I am on this case like things are not as they seem. But she was not an assassin. 
Dawson. Saunders says that he'll meet them at the amusement park at like 8 p.m. or something. So we get to the amusement park. They're playing bumper cars. They're doing the shooting game. Bond is way too good at the shooting game, so wins an enormous elephant for Kara. My favorite bit in that, I, I actually, again, I like the construction of this scene. My favorite bit in that is when we cut to the shooting game, we never see Bond play the shooting game. Bond is like standing there holding the rifle and the, the carny is just like, please, no more. <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> You're killing my family. Then the Bond is like nods and hands in the gun is like that one. And he hands Bond this giant plush elephant. <laughs> you are too good. I cannot stop. After being spooked by like a haunted house, this apparatus outside a haunted house, which is pretty creepy. Kara asks to ride the Ferris wheel. So Bond takes her on the Ferris wheel. And just after they take off, Saunders walks up to the base of the Ferris wheel, but Bond can't see him because he is obscured by a man carrying a bunch of balloons. Which is Necros. Yeah, so Saunders goes to the cafe, Cafe Prada, where he said he was going to meet Bond, goes in and sits down, and all we can hear is the same song that was playing when Necros did the assassinations earlier, playing over a Walkman headset, but Necros is nowhere in shot. We just hear the music playing. Oh, yeah. There are two other original pieces of music for this movie that are not by, aha, there are two songs by The Pretenders that are like in the movie. And the one that plays on his headphones is Where Has Everybody Gone? The other Pretender song is If There Was a Man. If There Was a Man. Yeah, which shows up during the date. We cut back to Bond and Kara on the Ferris wheel as the Ferris wheel comes to a stop at the top and Bond turns off the light and says the view is much better this way and then walks over to Kara and they start making out. She initially protests she's because I mean as far as anyone involved is concerned she is Georgi's girlfriend but Bond is very dashing in this scene and is just like no no don't don't think just go with it they start making out and apparently they don't stop making out because the next shot is the car arriving back at the station having presumably resumed its rotation all of the crowd waiting to get on breaking out in laughter as they see in the window that there are just two people in this car and they are making out something fierce the door opens and the operator of the the ferris wheel leans in is like do you want another trip they sort of look <laughs> bashful and and get out they head over to some of the shops Bond leaves Kara looking at postcards while he heads to meet with Saunders, and we see that Necros has done something to the sliding glass door of the cafe, but we don't know what. Bond goes inside. Saunders has the travel documents and also a piece of information that Bond had asked for that I failed to mention earlier, which is Kara mentions that her cello is a Stradivarius and was given to her by a friend of Kozkov's. And Bond is like, how did your patron afford a Stradivarius? That's ridiculous. Now, all the Stradivarius have names. This is called the Lady Rose, I believe. He asks Saunders, you know, can you look into this? Because, like, what's up with this? And Saunders is like, oh, yeah, so I found out who bought it for a huge amount of money, and it's Brad Whitaker, to which Bond is like, Whitaker, the arms dealer? What? Well, where is, where is he at? And Saunders says, in Tangiers. And Bond is like, Ah, okay. The pieces are starting to fall together now. So Saunders gets up to leave as the music 
swells and gets progressively more sinister. He turns and he walks towards the door and the door slides open for him and the music goes, Donna! And then we get a shot of Necros's face holding a little remote control. And just as Saunders steps into the path of the electric door, Necros presses a button on the remote control. A little device in the engine of the, the door explodes and this glass sliding door slams shut. It is done in a way that you never actually see what happens to Saunders. It's all left to the imagination. It's shot very carefully and very well. Yeah. And so the whole door shatters and the glass explodes all over the floor. And we see Bond run over and look shocked. And he leans down off the bottom of shot and looks at what's going on. And and then we get a closer shot of Bond on the ground and like the mirrored wall is all cracked and broken and there's blood smeared across it. All we see is Saunders' leg. And as Bond is observing what happens, a balloon bounces over towards him and he looks at it because there appears to be writing on it. The balloon says smeared spionum on it and Bond gets very angry and pops the balloon. He is incensed and he sees balloons on the other side of a hedge walking along he noticed that there was the balloon man earlier so he takes off pulls his gun leaps over the fence and comes face to face with a mother and her child who has balloons and puts his gun away and he's very just sort of flustered and and angry and he and Kara take off he's really pissed off yeah he's not happy (laughs) we cut to Tangiers which is actually where the trade conferences and bond is keeping an eye on things or trying to keep an eye on things the locals get in his way and he gets eyes on pushkin follows him finds out where he's staying and later that night breaks into his hotel room pushkin is arriving at the hotel room with flowers and presents for i think a mistress he enters the room the mistress looks petrified and bond is behind the door with a silenced gun So Bond in this scene is playing it like he is the double O that MI6 has sent to kill Pushkin. Mm -hmm. Like he's acting like they are not friends. They have never exchanged pleasantries. He believes that Pushkin is dirty and is intending to kill him, but also doesn't just kill him. So it's an interesting sort of dynamic. It gets to the point where Pushkin is on his knees with Bond pointing a gun at the back of his head. Bond tells him that as long as you're alive, we'll never know what Koskov is up to. And so Pushkin looks back at Bond. And like there there's an undercurrent of the fact that they are both like they are both friends in this scene, but Bond is playing it, as you say, very, very cold and very I have to kill you. This is my mission. But he he has not, you're right, he doesn't just shoot him. He he milks him for information first. So Pushkin looks back at Bond and like looks him in the eyes and says, with a, a pretty sympathetic look on his face, then I guess I have to die. And that's where the scene ends. And then we cut to Pushkin, very much alive, speaking at the trade conference. And it's like, wait, 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 well, hang on, what? Also at the trade conference, now having assumed the role of a man that he knocked unconscious, running the follow spotlight, is Necros, who pulls a gun and aims it at Pushkin on the stage, When gunshots ring out, Pushkin falls dead with three gunshots to the chest. Necros moves his spotlight to the source of the gunshots, and it's Bond on the balcony. Bond has just now killed Pushkin in public Mm -hmm. and is being chased by the Tangiers police. So there's an extended rooftop chase of 
Bond being chased by the police. And there's cool stuff with jumping between rooftops and swinging off radio antennas. And there was even a scene in here that they shot that even they felt was too silly with a <laughs> magic carpet. Ah, oh, yes, that would be too silly. Where he meets a guy who's like an MI6 dude who gives him a big, like, sturdy carpet that he hefts over some power lines and like so it looks like he's riding the magic carpet kind of thing and it's right. like that's too goofy but that does not happen in the movie that we are presented with so <laughs> yeah the the most ridiculous thing i think that happens in this scene is bond uses like a radio or television antenna as a pole vault pole like he uses it he uses it to break his fall he jumps and grabs it and uses it to break his fall causing it to flex like way way over and then a police officer runs up to it and he lets go of it and it smacks the police like springs back and smacks the police officer yeah the scene is intercut with pushkin being rushed to medical care with his wife in tears where he opens his eyes and gets up and takes off his coat where he's wearing a vest full of blood packets over top of a bulletproof vest and he remarks this is the first time in my life i'm glad that james bond is a good shot <laughs> because he and bond have just conspired to fake his death bond while trying to get away from the cops is approached by two women in a convertible asking him hey uh you want a party to which bond responds yes i definitely do and gets in the car and they drive away there's definitely something suspicious about these women as they get a little further on he says okay you know what actually let's party later uh just let me out here and they don't and he's a right, right no no fair enough i'll pay you for your time and starts pulling some money out and they're like nope that's not gonna do it and he's like okay this is literally all i have how much do you need because he thinks they're just trying to roll him over but it turns out that they take him to felix lighter who is on that boat that we saw earlier outside whitaker's place when pushkin first arrived this is a completely different felix lighter from the previous or the next this is john terry as Felix Leiter, who played Dr. Shepard on Lost. You watched Lost, didn't you? Really? Yeah. Really? He also played Bob Warner on 24. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. I see it. Sure. You'll have to tell me if he was better in those than he is in this, because in this, he's just sort of forgettable. Yeah, I, I don't remember him well enough to tell you whether he was good on Lost or not, but I, I recognize him now. There's a couple moments in this movie where it kind of bogs down, and I think this is one of them. I don't think Felix needed to be in this movie. No, I don't think they even talk about anything in this scene. It's like, hey, James, I see you're on a mission. It looked like you were in some trouble. Let's have a drink and talk shop, and then it cuts away. Felix will help out later, if I recall correctly, but that's about it. Yeah, Felix pulls him in because he's like, what are you doing? Are you trying to start World War Three? You just executed a Russian general in public in the middle of a trade conference. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Bond is like, it's a long story, but Pushkin's fine. And Felix is like, wait, are you telling me this, this was all staged? And Bond is like, yeah. <laughs> Do you honestly think I would execute a Russian general in public in the middle of a trade conference? At which point Felix gives him his gun back and pours them both a drink. And he's like, all right, bring me up to speed. And then we cut away. Back at Whitaker's place, Necros arrives back and Whitaker's like, hey, great job. Necros says, oh, I didn't do it. Bond did it. And Koskov says, ah, ah, I told you. Isn't that great? And then Koskov gets a phone call at Whitaker's place, which Whitaker is very surprised to receive. Not as surprised as Koskov, but Koskov looks very nervous when he answers the phone. And we don't find out who it is yet bond arrives back at his hotel where kara is practicing the cello she makes them both some drinks but 
pointedly does not drink herself. Bond is explaining what's actually going on. He gets all the cards on the table, explains what's up with Yorgi, how he faked the defection and everything and was giving her up and wanted her to die, basically, as that sniper. And she realizes that she has made a terrible mistake because that was her who phoned Koskov. Koskov being a manipulative piece of crap, basically told her whatever she needed to hear to believe him and got her to drug Bond. So as he is falling unconscious, Kozkov and Nekros come into the room while Kara looks appalled that she has betrayed him in this way. Oh no, what have I done? Yeah. So they hop aboard an ambulance. They they put him in an ambulance and take it to the airport where they have faked a passport for him with the name of... J- Jersey Bondov. <laughs> and they have also faked a human heart transplant. Right, that's their cover story. They're like, "We're this man needs a heart transplant. <laughs> Look, here's the heart. And they open up the box and it's this beating heart surrounded by ice. And the customs guy is like, oh, oh, oh God, close that. I don't want to, I don't need to see that. And leaves. We find out shortly that not only is it like a, I don't know, it's a pig heart or something. It's not human, but the ice is actually diamonds. This is how Whitaker is smuggling $50, 50 million worth of diamonds, I think. Yeah, Bond, Bond wakes up on the airplane. This is... This is one of those weird sets, like it's clearly a military cargo plane, right? And it's not a huge one. They drive the van into the cargo hold on the plane. But then there's just like a commercial airliner interior, I guess, at the front of the plane, because Bond and Kara are both sitting in seats at the front of the plane for this scene. But Bond is cuffed to a chair, but he's conscious again. So he waits until Necros leaves to use the bathroom, then sort of like wakes up and motions to Kara. It's like, Kara, Kara, what's open the chest? I can't get at it. Open the chest so I can see what's in it. And he looks at it and he's like, oh, that's not a human heart. That's an animal heart. And the the ice, oh, it's it's diamonds. And so he discovers that. And then like he hears Necros coming. So he goes back to sort of faking being groggy as Kara slumps back down at her seat to make it not apparent that they've been working together. And then Necros goes to the pilots or to the cockpit and Koskov comes back and sort of like gloats a little bit. He then tells Bond, he's like, all right, I'm going to turn you into the Russians. You've proven very useful to me turning up because now I can return to Russia a hero having brought them the person who killed Pushkin and you will take the fall for all of this. Yeah, this actually works out amazingly for Koskov in in the world where Bond doesn't eventually win, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, right yeah, yeah. now, this looks great for Koskov. Yeah, so he's got Bond. He's going to turn Bond in. Bond is going to end up in a gulag or whatever because he killed Pushkin. That will, of course, lead to Koskov being elevated in rank because Pushkin's dead, or so he thinks, and he already has this sweet arms deal on the books so he'll be able to provide all these fancy new weapons to the like the russian military and then get an immigration visa and live out the remainder of his life in the lap of luxury in the west this is his plan as far as we know it this is not his whole plan but this is his plan as far as we know it they land on a soviet military base in afghanistan and koskov 
relinquishes Bond to the base commander to put in the base jail and tells him to take Kara as well. So this is him formally betraying her. And she looks she looks betrayed. But I mean, she kind of knew this was coming. <laughs> well, he also leans over and says, I'm here on a secret mission. I'm going to need a contingent of men and trucks. I'm here on a secret KGB mission, which is he's lying. But yeah, he's a he's a general. What's this guy going to do? So they get taken into the jail. There's one other cell with a man in it who's being belittled by the jailkeeper. As they are inspecting Bond's key finding device, Bond whistles the correct whistle to make the temporary stun gas go off. And then we get a fight scene with Bond and the guards and the large jailer who threatens to put his head on the filing spindle on the desk. (laughs) Kara could be a little more useful in this scene yeah she just spends some amount of time standing there watching stuff but she does eventually hit a man on the head with a bucket so you know there's yeah that. i mean i would be probably about as useful in a fight as kara is in this fight so i i have a hard time blaming her because <laughs> the fight does not go on super long no the editing doesn't do her any favors of just showing her standing there for a while while yeah i guess that's true bond's head down on the spindle anyway the guy in the other cell grabs the guard's arm as well which helps bond out a lot eventually they overcome the guards and the jailkeeper and put them in a cell the other guy is just loving this he thinks it's the best thing ever so she says so kara runs over and is like we did it we're safe and he's like we're on a soviet air base in the middle of afghanistan (laughs) and she's like Oh, yeah, right. Okay. (laughs) There's this catharsis after the fight where she's like, hooray. And he's like, okay, a little (laughs) bit of perspective, Kara, please. Before they leave, the guy in the other cell is like, come on, can I, can you give me the keys? Come on, give me the keys. Bond is like, all right, all right, fine. Throws him the key ring. The other guy's very happy about this. I wonder if that'll pay off later. (laughs) Who knows? So they sneak around the airbase. They spot Koskov and Necros loading the diamonds into a truck and they... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they steal Bond and Kara steal a stair truck like one of the yeah. you know, like Bluth family like the the stairs that go up to the plane I also was gonna make an arrested development joke but I cannot remember for the life of me what they call the people that jump on are they jump ons is that actually what the joke is so you're gonna get some jump ons I do not remember they drive it over to the fence at the edge of the airbase and then go up the stairs and jump over the fence <laughs> it's great And the man who they helped to get out of the jail cell also comes and leaps off the stair truck, which is lucky because as they're running away from the Air Force base, a group of conspicuous lumps in the ground stand up and hold Bond and Kara at knife point, only to be halted by the man that they saved. It doesn't help that Bond and Kara are wearing Russian uniforms to disguise themselves at this point. Very good point. (laughs) I hadn't actually considered that. Because uh, the, the guy stops them by saying, they're not Russians. <laughs> Leave them be. They're not Russians. They help me escape. Yeah. And it turns out that all of these people, and indeed the man they saved, are Mujahideen, mm-hmm. who at the time were considered friendly and noble freedom fighters because they were fighting against the Soviets in Afghanistan, among other places. You will recall, I think I referenced it in an earlier episode. I think it was the first Rambo movie that was dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters. It's the third. The third one? The one that takes place in Afghanistan. Right, that makes more sense. It's been a while since I've (laughs) engaged in anything in the Rambo sphere. The first Rambo movie takes place in small town America in the 1980s. 
so it would be unlikely that you would find many Mujahideen there. Does it really? It does. It was filmed in Hope. I knew that. I did. Huh. The first one's really, really good. Now we're diverting again, but the first one's a really, really good movie just in its own right. They spin out from there, but the first one is like legitimately actually a really, really good movie. The third one is not. <laughs> I had completely forgotten that that's what the first Rambo movie was like. I just, you say Rambo and I just get this image of Stallone shirtless with an AK gunning people down in a desert. Yeah. Or a bow and arrow. Oh yeah, right. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> but back to the movie we're actually talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, the point is that the general perception or the, rather the way that they are portrayed in North America of militant Islamic fighters from Afghanistan has not been positive. But at the time of this movie, it was like, oh, great, the Mujahideen. Mm hmm. That's that's awesome. They also don't like the Soviets. Hooray. Yeah, this movie is it is casting them as heroic friendlies because media had a tendency to do that. The history buffs in the comments will undoubtedly have lots to say about the global political relations as they pertain to the Russian Afghanistan war and the role of the various local militant factions and their backing by various Western nations. But for the purposes of this film, they're friendly and helpful to bond and allied with the West, which is without diving deep down the geopolitical rabbit hole. All we really need to know for the purposes of the remainder of this film. <laughs> yeah, hot take, everyone sucks. By which I don't mean everyone sucks, so it's fine. I mean, everyone sucks, and and that's a damn shame. Yeah. But for the purposes of this movie, hooray, we're saved. Now, they can't help but also make this guy, who they saved, happened to be the leader of this particular group of the Mujahideen. This is the character is Cameron Shah, played by Art Malik, who has a career involving playing, you know, many sort of similar characters. They can't help but, of course, make him be a Cambridge-educated, fluent English speaker mm -hmm. who is the man in charge of this group of Mujahideen, which seems unlikely. A little bit, yeah. This, by the way, it's this is the main section where I think that this movie bogs down structurally. Yes. Yeah. It's certainly like an attempt by the film to uh, there's probably not a super tactful way to say this. It is an attempt by the film to make the militants more palatable to a Western audience mm -hmm. and to provide them a character that is less different to latch onto as like, ah, he's the good one that leads them all and is going to tell them to help. It is unsubtle in its attempt to do that. Yeah, you're totally right. So Bond asks for help, right? He's like, I need a hand. I need men with guns. <laughs> we need to stop what is about to happen. Cameron is like, no, no way. We got our own stuff going on here. I cannot spare the men. We have this whole thing that we're doing. To, like, we have a mission that we're on. We are definitely not doing anything tonight. So we leave at sunrise on the mission. You can accompany us on the mission. You know, we'll, we'll talk about supporting you when the mission is done. 
And so Bond returns to his room and meets back up with Kara. Basically is like, listen, you need to stay here. You'll be safe here. I have a mission to do, so I'm going to take off. Cameron can, can like, deal with getting you back to the West, but I probably won't be back. And Kara doesn't take this very well. Kara, <laughs> Kara starts hitting Bond with a pillow and calls him a back end of horse in Russian, which he correctly takes to mean that she was calling him a horse's ass. They have a laugh about it as she's not really angry. She's just sad to see him go. So the next day we cut to the mission and Kara's along for the ride for this mission. But she knows that she's going to be parting ways with Bond when he goes after Georgi. But we don't we still don't really know what this mission is like. It's something but they're riding through the countryside and then we sort of have this intercut with the Russians getting in an APC and driving away. It turns out that what the mission is, is a drug deal. And not a small scale one either. No, not a small scale one at all. What What is going on here is that the Mujahideen are selling half a billion dollars of raw opium to Koskov, disguised as like care food aid, basically. Yeah, you know who got real mad at this movie? The Red Cross, because the, all the packets have red crosses on them? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> they apparently threatened legal action, but did not actually follow through. But certain later re-airings and some home video releases bear like a disclaimer that's like, the use of the Red Cross symbol in this movie it does not necessarily, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, they are selling half a billion dollars, $500 million worth of raw opium to Koskov specifically in exchange for the diamonds that he brought to Afghanistan. Bond pieces together what's going on here. Oh, I'm glad someone does. So I was right, by the way, Koskov is the one, is the big bad of the movie, despite not being in the final boss fight. Koskov is taking the money that he was going to use to buy arms from Whitaker, using that money to buy 10 times that value in drugs, which he is then going to sell for a profit of half a billion dollars, and then use the $50 million that he has committed to Whitaker to pay for arms and keep the remaining $450 million. That seems like a great plan. I don't know what could possibly go wrong. What could possibly go wrong? Bond, having pieced all this together, is like, oh, this is what's happening. Well, we can throw a big old wrench in this plan. And he tells Cameron this. He's like, we need to blow this deal. <laughs> And Cameron is like, absolutely not. We need that money. We we cannot carry on this fight without the finances. So you will not do anything until the deal is complete. Bond is like, all right. But as soon as they have possession of the drugs, those drugs are not going to arrive, is basically what he says. Like, those, those drugs are not getting to their destination. Because as soon as Koskov no longer has the diamonds, the $50 million worth of diamonds, and if he no longer has the drugs, he will be $50 million in debt. To Whitaker, the arms deal won't happen, and Koskov will be in a very bad place. All the pieces are now set up for the remainder of the movie. We have to stop this drug deal, or rather, we want we have to let the drug deal happen, but then stop the drugs from being transferred to Koskov and being lost to the market so that Koskov can't pay Whitaker, and that will be it. Which is also to the benefit of Cameron Shaw, because then the Russians will have fewer guns. Yes, the Russians will have fewer guns and he will have $50 million worth of diamonds. Mm. That's basically what happens. Bond helps with the drug deal. He helps load packets of opium 
into the Russian truck by posing as one of the militants. He, he wraps his head up in a scarf and hides his face. He asks Cameron Shaw for some plastic explosive and a timer, which apparently they just happen to have on them. He, he gets that and he fashions a bomb. He puts the bomb in one of the bags. His intent is to put the bomb on the truck and then let it go. But he ends up getting trapped on the truck. He's like hunkered down in this transport truck full of drugs and is like setting up the bomb when the loading of the truck ends. He's like, OK, well, I'll get out when the truck drives away only for a Russian soldier and Necros to get in the back of the truck with him. <laughs> and so he like hunkers down and tries to not get noticed as he's hiding in the truck. When the truck arrives at the Russian military base, two like workers get on and start unloading the truck and they are locals right they're they're locals and he's disguised as a local so he just sort of like shuffles up to the front and starts handing sacks to these other workers who look are like was he already on the truck well, I don't know. I guess so. And they start loading all these sacks into a cargo plane. I love that he was loading it and went into the truck and then came out of the truck and was unloading it. And everyone's just like, yeah, that that tracks. Yeah. He manages to grab the sack with the bomb in it, basically, and he carts it onto the plane where, again, he hunkers down behind all of the drugs to set the bomb again. While all of this is happening, Kara and Cameron have sort of moved up on the base they they at this point are, are ready to make a move on the base because they know bond is trapped kara manages to distract one of the guards by calling him like essentially sort of bringing him over the sound of her horse attracts him and then he's like oh a woman cameron like pops out of a truck and knocks him unconscious and cameron and many of his other soldiers are are there ready to sort of put a plan in action as the plane finishes loading, Bond goes to get off the plane. Having now set a bomb with a 10-minute timer on the plane, Bond goes to get off the plane. But just as he is about to get off the plane, his, like, scarf has fallen down. Who should be boarding the plane but Koskov and Necros, who instantly recognize him? And so Bond, like, KOs the guard on the plane and grabs his gun and starts firing out of the plane with the gun. And while that's going on, the Muhammad Mujahideen fighters all start their raid on the base as Cameron has like commandeered a, a giant like bucket shovel thing like an earth mover bulldozer oh, a yes. bulldozer is the word i'm looking for he has he has commandeered a bulldozer he starts like knocking things over in the base and and he drives through the shower facility and leaves two guys standing buck naked in the middle of the field and what's a bit of a goofy scene in all the ensuing chaos necros and koskov go and hide under a truck and bond is like all right, well, I guess I'm doing this and runs to the cockpit of the cargo plane and fires it up, thinking that he's just going to fly the plane away. He fires the plane up, but the plane has still got its like landing block in. So he has to sort of rocket back and forth to get the plane to take off. The whole base is exploding and gunfire is going off and people are shooting each other and, and all sorts of things are happening. Bond manages to get the plane moving, driving down the runway. And as he is doing that, Kara is like, no, I'm not letting Bond go away. And so she commandeers a vehicle and drives up beside the plane. Bond motions like drive around back and drive in. And she eventually gets the message that this is what she should do. So she sort of like barn swallows her Jeep into the back of the truck or into the back of the plane. First of all, well... <laughs> 
<laughs> that is in fact how they did that stunt because there's no way they could do that with an actual plane so they got the biggest moving truck they could possibly get <laughs> decorated the inside and the back exterior to look like the rear of the plane so that she could drive well the stunt person could drive the jeep up onto it because they couldn't do it with the actual plane right oh that's great while she's doing this, Koskov and Necros grab a, like, technical <laughs> and start pursuing them. Necros manages to get on the plane, and it's not super clear whether he does or not, but he, like, makes a last-second leap and manages to get on the plane. But Kara doesn't notice, and so she goes up to the cockpit and is like, hey, I made it, and the plane takes off, and Bond leaves the plane in her command, being like, just keep it straight and level, and she's like, no, well, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going to defuse a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes to the back to defuse the bomb. And while he's doing this, he gets attacked by Necros, who has been hiding out in the back of the plane, waiting for his opportunity to strike. Just prior to this, and this is why I said that Koskov almost dies off screen in the movie where he is the functionally the primary villain, is Koskov was driving the vehicle that Necros was on and, and that he used to get Necros onto the plane. As the plane was taking off, another plane was landing, and so Bond had to do this tense, like, takeoff where he managed to lift off and fly just above the landing plane. Koskov drives his, like, drives his truck right into the wing of the plane, and they both explode. Just as luck would have it, Koskov doesn't quite die. He's badly, badly burned. I don't understand <laughs> how, because I uh, that happened, and I was like, oh, okay, that's the end of that guy. And then it cuts to him very much alive in the front of that Jeep thing they were driving around. And I was just like, yeah. how, how are you alive? It was a huge fireball. There's no way. But he manages to free himself and rolls onto the ground. And he's, he's scorched, but still alive. He lies sort of sitting on the dirt, watching his half a billion dollars fly away. We return to the plane that Bond is in. He and Necros have a like have a fight. Necros tries to strangle him. A knife gets pulled. Bond is on the ropes for most of this fight. It does not go super well. At, as Bond is in his worst position, he manages to cut a netting full of sacks loose. Kara, who's up front, can see that this is happening and knows that she needs to do something. So she starts flying the plane somewhat erratically and then finds the hatch on the back of the plane, the lever for the hatch on the back of the plane. And so she just opens it. I'm not sure what she was expecting to happen it's not necessarily the safest or most well thought through plan but she opens the the cargo ramp on the back of the plane and then noses up and then noses up dumping everything in the plane out the back of the plane that includes bond and necros who both go out the back of the plane and this entire cargo net full of opium packs that Bond and Necros both managed to grab onto. And so they're now dangling out the back of this cargo plane, hanging from this cargo net. After dumping them out of the plane and nosing down, she then noses back up. So they do this zero G like lift. Bond and Necros both trying to like climb back into the plane as we get shots of like the ropes that are holding the netting in place, getting getting like frayed and tighter. They have like a fist fight on the net and Necros pulls his knife. And after the fist fight, Bond manages to get the knife away from Necros and goes to climb into the plane. And as he's doing that, he like cuts the net, causing packets to like fall out 
and like hit Necros and render the cargo base unstable because, of course, it's now changing shape and getting lighter weight and just becoming a cargo net that is no longer burdened with stuff. And that causes Necros to like flip up and down as he's getting bucked by the air at the bottom of this net. As Bond goes to make his escape, Necros manages to grab his boot. And so Bond <laughs> reaches down with Necros's knife and cuts his boot laces one at a time as Necros is like pleading for his life, like, no, don't do it, don't do it. And Bond finally cuts the last lace on his boot, causing his boot to slide off and Necros to fall off the back of the plane, plummeting 30,000 feet to the ground. And that removes Necros as a threat in this film. What an amazing stunt, first of all. Oh, yeah. It looks amazing because they they just they did it. They just hung these guys out the back of the plane on a big thing of netting. Yeah, it's amazing. Like they, they have the actual plane there and this netting full of sacks and these two guys crawling all over it, having a fist fight. And it's super cool. The only thing that bugs me is the bit with the boot, because it's like Necros just move. Just let go and grab the net that's <laughs> right beside the boot. <laughs> And then you'll be okay. But yeah. the, the shot of all the bags flying off into the sky is just super, super cool. So yeah, this is a combination of literally like they're skydiving people that we've had doing stunts before, like the skydiving team doing that for real. And then all the close-up shots of Timothy Dalton and Andreas Wisniewski are on a soundstage with the like butt end of this plane and the bag being suspended over a miniaturized diorama of the mountains. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's not rear projection. They built like this teeny diorama of the mountains and it works really well. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, this scene is rad. Like this fight scene is awesome. It's just an incredible stunt. What I love also is at the end, Bond has to get back inside. And so they were like, they got bj worth the guy doing the stunt to be like okay when you're done just you know crawl back up the thing two problems with that one it's really slow because it's hard to do and two with the other actor and all of the bags gone the netting really flaps around in the wind a lot right he came very close to just like bonking into the underside of the tail and getting like smashed so what they ended up doing is they used the footage from one of the moments where he gets like really badly bucked up in the air and then cut to a reverse shot of Timothy Dalton getting thrown down inside the plane to imply that he gets sort of flipped inside by the air current. Right. It's clever. Yeah, it's super clever because originally he's just supposed to crawl back inside. But in sequences like this, it's got to be interesting for the actors because in sequences like this, it's like, all right, the stunt team went out. This is the footage they had. You got to match to that. Right. Because they're not going to go back out and match to what you're doing. Like they're, <laughs> they did the harder thing. You can pretend. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever they did is going to dictate where you have to move in this scene. So Bond does get back aboard. But of course, the thing that's been going on through this entire scene that we haven't mentioned in a while is there is an active time bomb still ticking away. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And so Bond gets aboard and like recollects himself and then sits down and then realizes that he can still hear the beeping in this sea of drug sacks sitting in front of him. And so he shambles around like desperately trying to find the sack that has the bomb in it. And he does. And it's got like 10 seconds left on the clock. And as he's like scrambling around, he manages to, to kill the timer with two seconds remaining. 
and then sort of like slumps down in his scenes like, oh, well, that was stressful. <laughs> Takes a moment to breathe, <laughs> then gets up, walks back into the cockpit where Kara asks, what happened? And he says, I gave him the boot. Except he gets like cut off by himself. Like the edit is very poor there because <laughs> he's like, I gave them the boot. But then he like dives forward because Kara's piloting the plane at a cliff a cliff right yeah he cuts himself off halfway through the quip because they are about to hit a mountain so then we immediately have another tense like flying as they like pull up over the mountain he does manage to right the plane as they're flying along now they can see out the windows that the muhajideen fighters are being pursued by russian tanks and being shelled and they are making their way across a bridge being chased by tanks and so bond gives control back to kara and is like keep it straight and level this time and she's like well where are you going now and he says i'm going to drop a bomb and she looks sort of confused he goes back and he resets the timer on the bomb for 10 seconds and then leans out the door on the plane and drops the bomb onto the bridge blowing up the bridge and separating the russian tanks from the Huajin fighters who all cheer on thanking bond for for saving them from their pursuers my favorite part about this sequence is the amazing miniature work because there's a real bridge that the tanks and horsemen are on and you can tell that that's not digital imagery and they're not arted on there they're actually horses and tanks and explosions and everything but the bridge that they're on is like 15 18 foot tall above a kind of a muddy swampy thing mm -hmm. and then the appearance of it being a hundred and some odd feet high with these massive support pillars is a foreground miniature right that's perfectly lined up so that the bridge deck looks like they're crossing this in like they made this canyon and this river and these pillar supports on a miniature right near the camera so that it looks like they're going across this massive bridge that doesn't exist. That's amazing. Yeah. And then they built like a fifth scale version of the canyon. So it's still enormous. Like the the hundred some odd foot high pillars are now, you know, merely like 25 foot high back at Pinewood Film Studios. And they <laughs> use that for the part where they blow them all up. Spectacular miniature work. It is really impressive to see it. It's it's a good like cathartic explosion. Having saved the day, Bond goes back to the pilot seat, anticipating that the remainder of his day will be relatively uneventful. That will not pan out. As the plane begins to sputter and Bond realizes that the drop tanks on the wing have been hit by bullets and are leaking fuel and the plane is running out of fuel. And he's like, well, maybe we can make it to Pakistan as one of the engines comes to a stop. And then a second engine comes to a stop. He's like, all right, cool. Uh, we're not going to make it. We need to come up with a plan. And he, he thinks about it. And then he's like, Kara, go back and get in the Jeep and put on your seatbelt. <laughs> and she's like, what? Why? And he's like, just do it. And he braces the yoke, runs back and hops in the driver's seat of the Jeep. He lowers the, the cargo bay door again and then punches the, uh, I don't know what to call it, but like the cargo eject, which causes the cargo parachute to open out the back of the plane, pulling the jeep out of the back of the plane the plane at this point is like coming close to the ground like it's not in a dive it's it's coasting like gliding into the ground 
So they're 30, 40 feet up, maybe, but they drop out the back of the, the plane. The platform that the Jeep is attached to breaks off and the Jeep drives through a wall and ends up sort of like on the road stopped with the plane off in the distance. You know, it, it flies off and then crash lands in a fireball, blowing up all the remaining drugs in the plane, eliminating that as a potential problem for them to have to deal with and, and verifying that the, the drugs are now all all done and dealt with i i quite like that stunt the sled firing out the back and then the sled hitting the wall and the jeep launching off the sled yeah everything this whole like we've stopped a couple of times to be like this bit is good and this bit is good this whole sequence is good like it's just a ton of rad stunts mm-hmm having like watched the fireball of the plane bond looks up turns around and there just happens to be a sign a road sign in front of him that says islamabad 325 kilometers this way karachi 200 kilometers this way he comments to kara it's like oh i i know a good restaurant in karachi if we if we head out now we might just make dinner now i was curious and i looked this up for one thing can't find any indication of pakistan highway 31 but that's entirely possible that that's a thing that exists i just you know maybe their system has changed or maybe that information isn't available on what google is giving me an english speaker as it's searches right but what i can tell you is that islamabad and karachi are 1400 kilometers apart (laughs) so there is no physical point that could be 325 kilometers from one of them and 200 kilometers from the other They clearly did their research on these signs. I think the research was what are two places that North American and European audiences will have heard of? Yeah, very likely. And on that front, they are successful. So they drive off towards Karachi. We cut back to Tangiers and Brad Whitaker's place. Bond is on the radio with Felix Leiter. And this is the other thing. The only other thing that Felix does is he basically is like, you're okay to go inside because Felix has eyes on Whitaker's place. So Bond attacks one of Whitaker's guards. But not before being scared by a bird again. John Glenn likes to do that to him. (laughs) So Bond enters the hall of statues. I definitely thought that like they were going to do a thing with one of those statues turns out to be him because they all look like Joe Don Baker. Mm -hmm. That ends up not being the case. Bond goes in and finds Whitaker with one of his dioramas that it's rigged for light and sound and smoke reenacting the Battle of Gettysburg. But reenacting it wrong, as Bond notes, Whitaker responds like, no, I'm fighting it the way I would have fought it. Yeah, Whitaker doesn't think it's wrong. Whitaker is doing historical revisionism. (laughs) It's actually interesting in in the scene because Bond walks up from the wrong side, like the little sign that says what battle this is, is facing the camera and Bond walks in from the back of the shot and looks at it and immediately just identifies what the battle is by looking at it and realizes that Whitaker is doing the battle differently from how it actually took place. I know he's doing it wrong. Is he also fighting for the south it sounds like he's fighting for the union i don't know my civil war history well enough but he comments that like if general pickett i think he says had been more aggressive had taken more casualties he could have crushed the rebellion there Mm. mead he says mead was too cautious if he had taken another thirty-five thousand casualties he could have crushed the rebellion right there 
once again, I'm sure we will have Civil War reenactors telling us the specific details of how this battle is fought in the comments. But that is what the scene is. He's like reenacting the fight. He's doing it the way he would have done it, presumably being willing to take those additional casualties in order to crush the rebellion right there. I mean, Gettysburg was already a pretty important victory for that. You know what? I'm not going to get into it <laughs> now. Earlier in the movie, when Whitaker was showing off his fancy new weapons to Pushkin, he had a remote control that made these drawers pop out of his dioramas that had the weapons inside them. And Bond is standing on the opposite side of this table to Whitaker with a gun trained on him. So Whitaker hits his remote and pops the drawers out, which knock directly into Bond's legs, tipping him over. And then Whitaker pulls up an Uzi and starts trying to kill bond and then he gets one of his very fancy guns with like a mm -hmm. with like a clear armor shield on the front of it it's very sci-fi but pretty cool looking yeah it's a good thing for whitaker that bond only goes for headshots yeah you'd think he would just aim low because his aim is very true yeah but instead of like going for center mass he just pings three bullets off the the head shield i do like whitaker's line here because he says you've had your eight because he's counting how many shots bond has had which is eight. <laughs> he says you've had your eight now for my does he say 80 or 80 80 yeah <laughs> now for my 80 because <laughs> this is some sort of bullet hose of a gun <laughs> bond manages to sort of like get hidden and behind a wall and take cover but the room is rigged with like traps because there's like cannons and little like figurines with the cannons and it turns out that those are actually animatronic and so like a little figurine lights a cannon behind bond at the press of a button bond realizes this at the last minute and dodges out of the way as the cannon goes off and like blows up half the room it ends up that bond puts his little phillips brand keychain fob on top of a bust waits until whitaker is in position does his wolf whistle the keychain blows up knocking the bust over onto whitaker who crashes him into a diorama of waterloo the head trauma being enough to kill him mm -hmm. bond quips that he's had his waterloo he is nearly immediately then interrupted by one of whitaker's goons who busts in the door behind him gun out ready to go pointed at bond bond braces himself for death realizing that he like he has no bullets left no way to defend himself has just been taken by surprise so bond sees his life flash before his eyes only for us to hear gunfire erupt from outside and the goon take several hits and fall over dead as pushkin and crew bust in the door pushkin having just shot this guy and we have a little sort of like resolution between pushkin and bond pushkin's goons bring koskov in who is like oh pushkin i'm so glad you're alive i could not believe that you had been killed and uh he motions to whitaker it's like who would have thought that this arms dealer could be up to such nefarious ends neither bond nor pushkin are buying it at all pushkin sends him back to moscow for trial saying put him in the diplomatic bag and that's basically it like the movie is pretty much over at this point we learn from pushkin that pushkin will get kara an immigration visa so that she can travel the world playing music we cut to kara playing at the concert hall with the stradivarius with the bullet hole in it this is the concert hall in vienna that she watched earlier commenting how great it would be to play there also the conductor of that concert is john barry oh okay 
Nice. Yeah. After the show, she is being escorted around the concert hall by M, who's there, and she meets with General Gogol, who is also there, making his first appearance in this film. He is on the, uh, what did they say? He's been moved to the international delegation or some such thing. I don't remember exactly what it is, but he's no longer like a military general. He's now like a diplomat. Mm -hmm. That is why like Pushkin and Koskov were doing their thing because Pushkin is now in the job that Gogol was in and Koskov was his underling. And in fact, this is the last movie that Walter Gattel would appear in as General Gogol. Right. And they had intended for John Reese davies to return in License to Kill as General Pushkin, but that didn't end up coming to pass, which is unfortunate. This is where Kara learns that she is being given an immigration visa so that she can travel all around the, the world and the West, playing her music in concert halls worldwide. And as she is excited to get this news, a ruckus breaks out, and who should bust in but Cameron Shaw and the Muhajideen. He's just like, I'm sorry we couldn't get here in time for the show i didn't want to miss it but as you can imagine we had some troubles at the airport <laughs> jesus i forgot about that yeah they're all wearing like bandoliers of bullets and everything still like to be fair that is a very good line it is finally kara asks well where's james and m says well sadly he's on assignment and she's like oh and she goes to her dressing room and looks sad and forlorn that James is no longer there to be with her. But as soon as she walks into her dressing room and closes the door, she sees that there are two vodka martinis sitting on a plate. This is interesting to her. Then we hear a whistle and a beep, 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 beep. And she smiles. And then the hand reaches out from behind a wall with the, the fob and whistles again. And it beeps again. And she realizes with certainty that Bond is there, and so she rushes around to the bed where Bond is, and they start to smooch, and the movie ends. There we go. That was The Living Daylights. Yeah. I have undersold what actually happens in that last moment a little bit, because as previously noted, there is no point during this film where it is where these two sleep together, right? Uh, like, there, there's no sex scene in this movie. It, you know, it's, I I would say that it is implied the morning before the Mujahideen's drug deal. Yes, it is. But but it doesn't we never see them go to bed or wake up in bed together or anything like that. Right. Whereas in this scene, she runs over to him and falls onto the bed with him and they embrace and Bond says, you didn't think I would miss this performance, did you? And then they start to make out and they roll into the bed and the camera like moves away so that we can't see them anymore. And then we just hear, oh, James. And then the movie ends. Right. <laughs> it was the you don't think i'd miss this performance did you that i thought bore commenting on because he's talking about sex he's he's talking about they're gonna do it yeah and there we go now the movie has ended this was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun i think this movie is not actually very bad <laughs> no i don't think it is either i uh it, it's it's different it's there are a lot of differences, but it doesn't necessarily feel as different as you think maybe it ought to. Yeah. Because of John Glenn's wildly fluctuating tone. <laughs> yeah, I think this movie feels this movie feels so much like for your eyes only. It does. Yeah. That I could completely have seen Timothy Dalton playing Bond in for your eyes only. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No question. You could transplant this Timothy Dalton Bond into that movie and that movie would not change. Yeah. 
<laughs> which you couldn't really do with Timothy Dalton for any of like Moore's other movies. They're totally so different. And the way Bond is played in those movies is so different that you would have to adapt the movie around that performance some. But the tone and the nature of this movie are so completely consistent with For Your Eyes Only that it feels of a kind with that film. Yeah. Dalton's take on Bond is interesting. He doesn't seem to allow himself much fun. Not that there was a lot of opportunity for Bond to necessarily have fun in this, but like, whereas Connery's Bond definitely seemed to relish in the the killing and the putting down of enemies of Britannia, and Moore's Bond seemed to enjoy the more jet-setting aspects of being an international spy. Dalton's Bond doesn't seem to necessarily enjoy any aspect of this. Mm -hmm. There are moments in this movie where he is enjoying himself and having fun, but it's just sort of he's he's very business. Yes, I agree with that a lot. The thing that strikes me is how harrowed he plays every moment. It's almost that's where the levity is coming from, but he plays every action scene where the end of the action scene is a relief. Mm -hmm. right like on the plane he finishes the big action scene on the plane and then like slumps down on the floor and is just like well that was quite a day and then realizes that his day is not over or when like he finishes off Whitaker and then immediately realizes like ah hell I'm about to die like he's very very focused on the mission up until the point where the mission gets done and then he relaxes out of it but all the other bonds to this point have been like the mission is what I get off on whereas Dalton is like all right I'm done I can breathe yeah and that's not something we've really seen in the other bonds at all and it dramatically affects the tone of the bond because it does sell that idea that like what he is doing is very stressful and he is eyes on the prize as long as he's doing the thing and he's still got lots of wry quips and i think his quips in this are really quite good like he's got the wit down which is actually like not something that dalton gets a lot of credit for he gets a lot of credit for being like the unfunny one there's a lot of good jokes in this movie yeah delivered by dalton yeah and it's just that he is so super serious about the mission up until the point where he is relieved of what he is doing that it doesn't sell the like the swagger <laughs> it's the hyper competence and then the break yeah Generally speaking, there's a few parts in here that I thought, you know, dragged a little bit, but overall it's well shot, it's well edited, it's it's put together nicely. A couple slumps pacing wise, but overall, yeah, this was a lot of fun and definitely felt like a fresh coat of paint on James Bond. I agree. So what do we think of the pre-title sequence, 007's skydiving into the Rock of Gibraltar and Bond tearing down the hillside on top of a truck with the sole exception of not having the hook deliver on until the end of the scene i think the rest of the scene is rad <laughs> i like the conceit of it i like the stunts that happen in it i i like the oblivious sas guys the real question is do i like it more than i like live and let die and i think the answer is no i think the i think this one goes between live and let die and view to a kill for me amusingly with this happens a lot i'm putting it in the same spot for me it's i don't like it more than i like the spy who loved me which is where i have in your space for live and let die so yeah i'm also right. putting this at my number six at the moment <laughs> all right cool 
Well, that worked out. Song, The Living Daylights, performed by Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> Pronouncing it like that is going to kill me. Um, they even spell it in like in the opening titles of this movie. They use like the font that people are using now with like the sparkly emote on either side of it. Like whenever someone needs to <laughs> they make a tweet where it's like, boy, this sure is aesthetic right like they use a funky <laughs> font for it in the opening titles of this thing everything else is sans serif except for aha yeah i think i know where this one goes right off the bat yeah oh but now i'm now i'm rethinking it for as much as i like the song mm-hmm. i actually think this one goes quite well this one goes to the middle i was gonna say quite low but i think it actually goes to the middle oh it's definitely in the middle for me but it's like higher middle i think yeah i think it's lower middle for me i think i think this goes above for your eyes only and below you only live twice i was initially thinking that it was above thunderball but it's not it's trying to be view to a kill but it's not view to a kill for being what i would describe as in the banger category it's kind of listless and ohmss absolute Banger. Man with the Golden Gun, iconic as hell. Diamonds are forever. You can never forget it. Thunderball, booming lounge singer kind of thing. You only live twice. Sampled by Robbie Williams and like again, (laughs) iconic as hell. For Your Eyes Only is where we hit the ballads that I am like not crazy about. But For Your Eyes Only is a pretty good song. We we talked about that. None of the songs from OHMSS through Thunderball or You Only Live Twice are listless, right? Like they're not lacking in energy they're not lifeless they bring a flavor and a brand to the movie that lives on beyond just the content of the movie right this is a good song but it's not that and so i think it knocked below all those but i would still rather listen to it as a song than for your eyes only which is why it gets inserted there specifically fair enough i i couldn't tell you much about else about the rest of the song but i have had just like the living daylights really really burrowed in there and so (laughs) i'm actually putting it uh, i mean like around about where you are but like one or two higher i'm actually putting it just below thunderball but for me above diamonds are forever that seems like a reasonable place to put it the movie overall is tricky because i really like this movie and again this whole thing is on a bell curve right it's like there's a sharp drop off in our sort of bottom three bottom four or five ish you know but overall i i really like all of these and this is a it's just a good movie it's like generally well put together yeah already talked about how it you know drags a bit in places but it's got all the stuff that we like it's got cool actions and cool stunts and interesting characters and fun spy stuff and yeah i really like it and it's like despite all of that it's only sort of in the middle for me because (laughs) it's because it doesn't have the larger than life but not too silly stuff that some of the earlier you know iconic ones do but it's also just not absolutely nailing being an excellent movie that some of the more recent ones have right i think i'm putting this one ninth okay between the spy who loved me and dr no so dr no was also the one i was waffling about where to rank this one in relation to (laughs) although my dr no is somewhat higher than yours yeah i'm not sure that that is specifically where it belongs like i am struggling with where to put this between dr no and goldfinger those movies are all so in the same like narrow rating scale that it's difficult to tease them apart (laughs) 
Oh yeah, it's like, I like them all a lot. This is like fractional separations. Yeah. Do I like this better than View to a Kill? Maybe. Do I like this better than Moonraker? I like them for so much different things that it's impossible to know. Similarly with Dr. No, do I like this better than Dr. No? I don't know. I think Dr. No rules, but this movie is really good too. Do I think this is better than For Your Eyes Only? Maybe not. Do I think it's in the same ballpark as For Your Eyes Only? Yes, I do, as previously discussed. So... This whole thing only works if you and I and everyone listening accept that by choosing to stack rank movies that vary so wildly in tone, we are setting ourselves <laughs> up for failure and yeah, no one will ever agree with what we do here. Yeah. I mean, I just want to get my my thought process out into the world, right? Oh, yeah. This goes below Moonraker, but above View to a Kill. All right. I think that's where I put this which feels very low for a movie that I enjoyed quite a lot, but I think that's where it goes. I think I just have more fun with Moonraker overall, and it doesn't drag in the same way. You can't say Moonraker doesn't move. <laughs> but I think this is a better movie on the whole for a bunch of reasons than View to a Kill. I like this. I like all these movies, darn it. That's why we're doing this show. I know. Now I'm second-guessing myself already, but no, I have to live with it. That is my final decision. Fair enough. I've already done my most Bond moment. What's yours? Oh, geez. What was yours again? Mine was, I'm so glad I insisted you bring this cello. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, mine is handing the expense receipt to M and saying that he upgraded Koskov to mm. Bollinger because the recommended brand was questionable. <laughs> yep. That's a good one. So I guess that brings us to the end. It does indeed. And next time, we will be coming just to the bare end of the 1980s with 1989's License to Kill. And you know I'm going straight for your heart. I assume this is a reference Sorry, to I'm the... Sorry, I'm quoting the lyrics of the song. Yeah. That's what I thought. He's got yeah. a license to kill, and you know he's going straight to your heart. I don't remember... Na, 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 na. I, 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 I don't remember the song. <laughs> Well, I do. Good. I'm, I, I look forward to it. So that'll be next time on From Rewatch with Love. Until then, thanks, Matt, always for doing this. Always. I have a blast every single time. Me too. Shout out to Featherweight for the art. Big shout outs. Matt Griffiths for the wonderful editing on the video version. And Heather, who does podcast admin for us, reminds me to upload these things on Sunday night. And of course, all of you, both for listening and giving us your thoughts, despite how we might poke you about that, and for your kind support of our Patreon at patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun. Until next time, this podcast will return. Mm -hmm.